And now for something completely different. This is the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Let's do it. Welcome to the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. With you till 3 on this Tuesday with plenty to get to over the next few hours. Coming up, some takeaways from day one of the SEC Media Day. Greg Sankey spoke yesterday, so too did a few coaches. We'll get to all that throughout the afternoon. Plus, plenty on Major League Baseball's All-Star Week. Juan Soto wins the home run derby last night. We'll give out our midseason MLB awards. Get to our Tuesday top ten later on as we look ahead to tonight's all-star game. And we continue breaking down each of the Power Five conferences throughout the week. Today, we get to the Big 12. The biggest storylines in the Big 12 this year. Who's going to win the conference? Who will finish where? We'll let you know coming up a little bit later on. Also, the most interesting team and the most interesting coach in college football this year. And the Stanley Cup is in the low country. You have a chance to go see the Stanley Cup today. As it's in North Charleston right now. Talk about that later on as well. Plenty to do throughout the afternoon with you till 3 o'clock. You can join the conversation throughout 843-721-9500 to give us a call. You can always text the show, 843-608-1734. Get to us on Twitter, at Morrow Middays. On Facebook, at ESPN Charleston. Via email, studio, at kirkmanbroadcasting.com. Or online, at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page, where you can leave a comment for the show. You can find the latest versions of the show podcasted right there. Or you can even take the Morrow Midday show with you, wherever you go. Just simply uh, stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com. With you till 3 on this Tuesday, Trent's on the steel wheels. He's back after a much-needed uh, little time off. Good to have him back. Trent, what's going on? How are you? Luke, I'm doing great. It feels so good to be back in the saddle with you, sir, behind the glass. Can't wait for today and the rest of the week. And we're almost to football season, Luke. Yeah. We're getting there. It's close. I'm glad to be back. Much-needed vacation, but I tell you what, I feel like an old man right now. I, I needed that break, but it's good to be back at work. Glad to be here with you on this beautiful day, Luke Morrow. Good to have you back. Anderson did a fantastic job the last couple of days. We'll get to Trent's takes later on. And uh, I'm with you that when, uh, you know, it, when we get these SEC media days, most notably, but all these other conferences, the ACC begins tomorrow in Charlotte, it really starts to feel like football season. Things start to ramp up. And we're only a few weeks away. But let's start with that. SEC media days yesterday. And Greg Sankey speaking to the world to kick things off. Shane Beamer will be talking with the media coming up, what, around 1230 tonight? We'll see if we get to some of that today. Most likely react tomorrow. I'm sure fan talk will be all over it later on this afternoon as well. A few coaches spoke yesterday. But Greg Sankey started it all off. And, of course, the big topic this week for all the coaches 
is going to be about the realignment and the shuffling and the moving around in college football. And that was addressed yesterday, as was potential college football playoff expansion and how the two intertwine. Here was Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner, yesterday talking about the potential future of the college football playoff with all the moving around going on. Here's what Sankey said. We as a conference weren't unanimous in our support. Um, I had as commissioner moved people forward to the point we were supportive as a league. And if we're going to go back to square one, then we're going to take a step back from the model introduced and rethink the approach. Uh, number of teams, whether there should be any guarantee for conference champions at all, just earn your way in. Um, there's something that's healthy competitively about that and creates expectations and support around programs. Where we go, we'll see. Greg Sankey yesterday talking about the future of college football, not just the realignment, but how it could impact the college football playoff and potential expansion there. I do like the idea of having to earn your way. Greg Sankey makes a fair point. If we're just going to give automatic bids to conference winners, what happens when somebody wins a bad Pac-12 with some sort of like 9-3 and three record? Is that as deserving as the third best team in the SEC who played a much tougher schedule and maybe has the same sort of record, but we're not a conference champ and doesn't get that automatic bid? It is a fair point about having to earn your way in instead of just guaranteeing a spot for conference champions. But I also think in all of this, the Machiavellian approach from Greg Sankey could also be trying to keep Notre Dame independent. There was a story yesterday about Notre Dame right now trying to strike while the iron is hot, use their leverage, try to get something like $75 million out of a broadcast company in order to stay independent. And this is the time to do it. You have more leverage now than ever if you're Notre Dame. Everybody seems to want you. And if it's, uh, you know, an NBC or somebody else that wants to get in on the party to keep Notre Dame and have all of their games and keep them independent, now you're going to have to pay up because otherwise Notre Dame can say, yeah, we'll go to the Big Ten. We'll go to the SEC. They want us. We can move at least once the TV contract is up in the next couple of years. But for Greg Sankey, when it comes to that playoff, a couple of things could be at play. Number one, as I've said throughout this conversation, it really doesn't matter how many playoff teams are going in. The SEC will always be number one. You want to leave the playoff how it currently is, the SEC will continue to dominate it. If you want to extend the playoff field and we could take 12 teams into the playoff, well, it's only going to lead to more SEC teams. And that conference will give more playoff teams than any other. It doesn't matter how many you're taking to that playoff field. So Greg Sankey can sit back and relax and kind of play it from that approach. Whatever you want to do. You want to keep it how it is? We'll be just fine. You want to expand it? Okay, we'll do fine there. But when it comes to Notre Dame specifically, for Greg Sankey, it may be in his best interest to try to keep that path clear, allowing Notre Dame to try to make the playoff as an independent. And the easiest path may be to make sure there are no automatic bids for conference champions. Because if there are, that may lead to Notre Dame having to join a conference sooner rather than later. If we're going to, say, have a 12-team playoff field, right, and six automatically go to conference champions, half the field's being taken up by automatic bids, or even if, say, we go to eight and six of those are automatic bids, the easier path may be to join a conference. It may be more difficult for a Notre Dame who's not in a conference and automatically loses out on half of those opportunities. And if and when that were to occur, at that point, maybe then, Notre Dame would be interested in joining, say, the Big Ten. And that'd be the start of the whole domino effect. And we spoke about this a little bit last week, where right now the SEC, they don't have to do anything. They could sit back and relax. Because I'd rather have Texas and Oklahoma coming into already the best conference in football than USC and UCLA going into the Big Ten. 
I still think the SEC is far and away the best conference in college football. They're doing just fine. They get their new TV contract. They don't need to expand. They don't want to expand. They'd just be cutting that pie in more pieces. Right? All the billions of dollars they're going to bring in with their TV contract, they're already going to split it 16 ways. Why be forced to split it more? But the linchpin in all this is Notre Dame. If Notre Dame joins, let's say, the Big Ten, that would force the hand of the SEC to try to keep up in this arms race. The SEC doesn't have to do anything right now. They're still in the lead. But if the Big Ten adds Notre Dame, things could become a little more interesting once again. That still probably wouldn't be enough to push the Big Ten up to the SEC's level, but the SEC may feel a little bit more pressure, may feel like they need to respond with a move of their own. So what do you do to try to avoid that? Well, if you're Greg Sankey, who seems to be the don of college football, you try to keep the runway clear for Notre Dame to still have the same path of making the playoff as an independent like they currently do. Don't make it any harder on an independent, on a team not in a conference, to try to make the playoffs. Because what you could be doing in the process is just pushing Notre Dame right to the Big Ten. You know, it's like uh, what they always say for parents, where uh, you don't want to make something like the forbidden fruit. You may not like the guy that your daughter is seeing, but you can't make it known all that, obviously, because it's just going to drive her further to the, that guy you don't like, and she's going to do it just to spite you. Right? It's a fine line you have to walk as a parent. You can't let it be known too, too much who you like, who you don't like, what you like. It becomes that forbidden fruit that it, when you were growing up, you experience it with whatever it may be. When people say, like, you can't have something or you can't do something, you want to do it even more. And the SEC could be pushing Notre Dame into the Big Ten by doing such a, a plan with the college football playoff, by restricting the opportunity to make it as an independent. Right, You push them to the Big Ten, and it starts that whole domino effect that now the SEC would have to respond. If you're the SEC, uh, don't lose sight of the, the forest for the trees. You're doing just fine right now with four teams in the playoff. Don't be in any rush to try to expand the playoff field, to give conference champions an automatic qualification, an automatic seat at the table, because what you may be doing is pushing Notre Dame to, say, one of your competitors and going down this whole road of expansion again, which then would lead to having to split up the TV contract just amongst more teams. You know, when the news came out about the Big Ten, Greg Sankey uh, spoke about it yesterday at the SEC Media Days. He was on vacation when the news came out. And he didn't call his vacation short. He didn't call an emergency meeting. He didn't act quickly. He didn't have to. He didn't get his presidents in the SEC together until a week later at what was already a regularly scheduled meeting. There was no panic, no sense of urgency, no need to react to every little move from Greg Sankey in the SEC. And it shows that the SEC is still on top. They don't feel threatened right now. USC and UCLA announced their move to the Big Ten. Greg Sankey continued to enjoy his vacation. No problem. And when the time came around for their previously scheduled meeting, that's when they got together a week later to talk about business. And when they show up at the SEC Media Days this week, right, there's no panic. Go watch Greg Sankey's press conference. Everything's good. They're still on top of the world. I think, personally, maybe personal preference, the best leaders are the ones that aren't overly emotional. And Greg Sankey has never been an emotional leader. I think Greg Sankey's the most important person in college football. And if we ever got to the point, it's not going to happen, but if we ever got to a point where there's some sort of commissioner in college football, I've always said, right, Greg Sankey should be clearly the number one guy for the job. Not an emotional leader, sits back. You know, yesterday in the show I told you I started to watch The Offer, which is Paramount Plus's uh, series on the making of The Godfather, which is a really interesting show, and I'm a couple episodes in, and they sucked me in. But if you watch The Godfather, which is regarded as maybe the greatest movie of all time, 
My first, Vito Corleone, the Don, and then Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, taking over for Marlon Brando's character. Both guys, same idea. Not very emotional. They were calm, cool, collective, always thinking, one step ahead of everybody else. Every once in a while, they'd have a little bit of a freak out, and maybe more so Vito. But the reason why Vito Corleone, why he prepped his youngest son, Michael, to take over was because he was that kind of fearless leader. He was a great thinker. He was smart, wasn't emotional, always kept his cool, right? always thinking about things, one step ahead of the opponents, and that's a lot like Greg Sankey. If we ever get to a commissioner of college football, it should be Greg Sankey, but he already seems to be the Don already. And when the Big Ten makes that move, it's fine. He kicks his feet up on his vacation, waits until the schedule meeting a week from now, Shows up at the media days yesterday with no stress because the SEC is doing just fine. And I'm sure Greg Sankey has more tricks up his sleeve. Like maybe trying to halt some sort of playoff expansion that could essentially lead Notre Dame to joining the Big Ten and starting this whole expansion of conferences once again. We'll get to more sound later on this afternoon from SEC media days yesterday because, of course, it's always an interesting thing. And by the way, right to show how important the SEC is they drag this thing out over a whole week we get like three coaches a day other conferences the big 12 was like one afternoon in and out okay moving on the SEC it's all week long most of the media members go there to Atlanta it's at the college football hall of fame it's such a big deal and it just shows how important and powerful the SEC is even if the big 10 gets USC and UCLA the SEC is doing just fine hey last night we had the home run derby and it was won by Juan Soto now, Juan Soto already turned down a $440 million contract. I don't think home run derby factors much into that. But now you see a lot of people, they'll drive up the price. And, and when they talk about the resume, now he's a home run derby champ. doesn't mean a whole lot to me. But it's just fitting that days after turning down that contract, he goes out there and puts on a nice display last night winning the derby. Here was Soto on the field after his victory, talking to Buster Olney on the ESPN broadcast last night about becoming the second youngest home run derby champion. Second youngest home run derby champion ever. How do you feel? It feels amazing. It feels tiring, first of all. <laughs> but it feels amazing, you know? Just the hard, hard work I put in and everything. It just felt amazing. All right, your strategy coming in, how did that work out for you? <laughs> it, feels, it, it worked out pretty well. I just tried to concentrate to square out the balls and try to drive it because I know I have the power to pull it off. What about the performance, Julio Rodriguez? Amazing, amazing. Great young kid. He's a, a lot of power. I know he was really tired after the first, second round, but he just get the chance to get to the finals, and I get the chance to hit in front of, uh, after him. What was it like tonight with Albert Pujols? Oh, he was amazing. I mean, face one of the legends of Dominican Republic is one of the things with the best. <laughs> so everyone, everyone in baseball is talking about your future, the next few weeks. What do you want to have happen? Right now, I don't even think about it. I think I'm, I'm a champion, and I will be a champion for the Nationals. Juan Soto after the win last night. He's a champion, he's a champion for the Nationals, for now at least. You know, yesterday in the show, when looking ahead to the home run derby in tonight's All-Star game, I did not like this idea of just putting Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera in the game. I still try to hold the All-Star game to a higher regard, that it really should be an honor and something that is earned to go to the All-Star game. You shouldn't just be put in because you had a good career, like it's a lifetime achievement award. To me, that's not what the All-Star game is. You want to bring them to the game, you want to honor them, that's fine. But to actually name them All-Stars, to have that go on the resume when Albert Pujols is batting 200 this year with six homers, and then to put him in the home run derby just felt like a bit much. Also felt like a little bit of desperation for Major League Baseball. I'm all for honoring 
the greats. But if I'm Major League Baseball, and I said this yesterday, I'm focusing more on the younger stars because that's the next generation. It's great to say goodbye to Albert Pujols and thank him for a great career, and maybe you're a big Pujols fan. You get to see him on the big stage one final time. But after this year, he's gone. And right now, he's not all that important in Major League Baseball. He's a part-time player hitting 200. Instead, focus on the stars that are supposed to carry the sport moving forward. And it's something Major League Baseball oftentimes has failed at. But I thought, with all that said, last night's home run derby played out perfectly for them. Because you had the Albert Pujols storyline early on in the derby, where you were able to see him and honor him, and people were talking about him, and they did the interviews, and all the other Dominican players loved the opportunity to compete with Pujols in the home run derby. And you had that whole part. Some believe Kyle Schwarber threw the competition to allow Pujols to move on. Maybe. Pujols hit 13 home runs before they went to that swing-off. Right? He didn't do very well. Neither did Schwarber. And Pujols advanced. Didn't really belong in the field. But while you had that nice moment of saying goodbye to a legend on the national stage last night, and it'll happen again tonight, and they got to interview Miguel Cabrera, at the end of the night, it came down to Juan Soto and Julio Rodriguez. Rodriguez is a rookie who's 21 years old. Soto is 23 and is about to be the next highest-paid player in Major League Baseball. And that's exactly what baseball should want. The average baseball fan, probably not very familiar with Julio Rodriguez. Now you know the name after last night. That was a coming-out party for Julio the young rookie in the AL. And for Juan Soto, who you're going to hear plenty about if you follow baseball, about what his future may hold, you got to see him on the big stage last night as well. And that was the perfect showcase for two of the young stars in Major League Baseball. And those are the types of guys they should be showing off more often. I can respect a great career like Albert Pujols. I'm a Red Sox fan, and when it was David Ortiz's final year and he was honored by every team on every road trip, as a Red Sox fan, right, it's nice to see him get his moment and you get to – celebrate him for an entire year. But at the same time, once they leave, they're gone. It's like, all right, now what's coming up next? How are we going to replace David Ortiz? For Major League Baseball, Pujols, Cabrera, they're retiring. Who are going to be the next stars that could be that next Albert Pujols? And last night was the best of both worlds because they got to do their whole honoring of Pujols. But by the end of the event, you had two of the young stars with their opportunity to shine on national TV. And Rodriguez and Soto, two names that should be some of the guys that carry the sport forward for really the next about 15 years. Albert Pujols played in the league for about 22 years. right? You could get about 22 years of Juan Soto. He could be one of these stars, the next Albert Pujols, for the next 15 years. And those are the guys you should focus on. Tonight's All-Star Game, I'm sure, will be a lot about Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols. But don't lose sight of the young stars that are more important for Major League Baseball right now. And that seems to be the problem with the sport. Rob Manfred complains about his athletes, right? Oh, they don't market themselves well enough kind of on you as well it's kind of on the league to do that and when you get that home run derby last night the focus going in was albert pujols why he was the least talented guy in the field with the uh, shortest time left in his career focus on the young stars that really shined juan soto and julio rodriguez meanwhile ronald acuna didn't put together the best performance got knocked out in the first round peter alonzo couldn't finish it off julio rodriguez knocked him out i thought he'd go for the three-peat i was wrong and we got a pretty good finish between Rodriguez and uh, Juan Soto in the finals. The All-Star Game is tonight. I'll have some more thoughts on that uh, tomorrow. And coming up later on, we'll get to our Tuesday Top Ten where we talk about the most memorable All-Star moments, and we'll get to our mid-league, uh, mid-season, I should say, awards for Major League Baseball. But when we come back, we're previewing a conference every day this week, working our way towards the SEC on Friday. Yesterday, we broke down the Pac-12. I gave you my predictions, my thoughts, how I think each team's going to fare this year. When we come back... We'll do the same for the Big 12. How was Brent Venables going to do in his first year as a head coach? 
who wins the Big 12 this year. I'll let you know when we come back. More Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Who needs a house out in Hackensack? Is that all you get for your money? And it seems such a waste of time. If that's what it's all about. Mama, if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. Coming up, we preview and break down the Big 12. How will Venables fare in his first year as a head coach? Who wins the conference? I'll let you know coming up here on the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow on ESPN Radio. We were talking about the Home Run Derby last segment. I do have to be fair. I was having this conversation off air. We don't fake the funk around here. We keep things real. I thought the broadcast last night was pretty poor. I don't like this current format for Major League Baseball's Home Run Derby. I think that hurts the whole broadcast. It's hard to keep up with what's going on. It feels so rushed to me. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm, uh, you know, I've gotten too old. I don't know. I was watching it last night. You watch, they had the split screen. One of them is the guy swinging. The other one's the ball landing from like two pitches ago. And you're like, oh, which one's which? And then they, they struggled to total up the homers. Carl Ravich had a hard time keeping up. He called a home run, you know, number 17 when it wasn't yet, and then he fell behind. In fact, like Juan Soto, I think, won the event and kept going because we didn't know. He hit that walk-off home run to win. Uh, the championship, I, he already won by then. He won, He ended up winning by like two or three because everything's just going too fast. We used to do, you had 10 outs. If you didn't hit the ball out of the ballpark, that's an out. Now it's this time limit, three minutes to try to speed things up. I don't like it. I know they've been doing it for a while, but I was sitting there. I watched most of the derby last night. Eh, I thought it'd be more enjoyable, the old school, where it's clear. One pitch, you swing, you follow the ball, wait till it lands. All right, come back with the next pitch. Now it's just like rapid fire. Uh, just throwing pitches on one half of the screen and seeing where they land on the other half, and I don't know which one's which swing, and the cameraman's like moving around trying to find them, and the broadcasters don't know how many home runs it is, and you know people think Kyle Schwarber got uh, a job. They didn't count one of his home runs last night. Who knows? Nobody knows. The scorers don't even know what's going on. It's going so fast. And I'll say this about Major League Baseball, and I always have to preface any uh, critique of Major League Baseball because it's in vogue now to shoot down Major League Baseball. I love baseball as much as anybody. I watch it every night. I used to work in my – I love Major League Baseball. But I've never seen a sport or even like a company that tries to shorten everything that they do. The home run derby, trying to – ah, it takes too long. We've got to speed it up. Games, you put a runner at second base. Ah, these games, we've got to make them end quicker. Tonight, there's going to be no extra innings tonight in the All-Star game. Instead, they're going to do a home run derby if the game goes to extra innings. You pick three players and you have like a swing-off, which I do kind of like the idea, but it goes back to this principle of shortening everything. I don't get it. And the NFL – I know college football changed their overtime rules a little bit. And the NFL, I know, in overtime they do a little bit of a sudden death. But most sports do not try to, like, shorten their product. Like, we got to get these people in and out. No, you want, the, you want them to be there as long as you can? You want them to be tuned into your product? Baseball is the number one sport that tries to shorten everything. Ironically, they also play 162 games and haven't shortened the season yet. But it's like, uh, you know, there's a director's cut for a reason. They want to put as much into their project as they can. And it's the studio saying, hey, we got to shorten this film. And Rob Manfred, I guess, he's like the studio. And we got to shorten these games. we got to shorten our product. Maybe he wants people uh, trying to leave people wanting more. 
too much of a good thing could become a bad thing. Maybe that's why Major League Baseball is trying to reduce some of the home runs lately. But it's like when you go to a concert, and I'm guilty of this too, and they go on, so like Bruce Springsteen will play for three, and it's eventually it's like, I just want to go home. Right? But he's giving you your, your money's worth. And as a fan, like you don't even appreciate it. And I've been there before. Pearl Jam and Eddie, they do like three encores. They're playing for three. It's like, ah, I don't want to miss any of the songs, but at this, like, it's been a long enough night. I just want to go home at this point. You don't have to play 40 songs for us. I guess that's like baseball, where eventually too much of something becomes a bad thing. When Pearl Jam's coming out for the third encore, like you appreciate it, but you really just, at that point, you just want to go home. I guess baseball looks at it the same way. Like once we get to 10 innings, eh, let's just send the people home. We've had enough baseball for one night. But I, never, I, I, I only get that thought in the sport. You'll hear broadcasters complain. Baseball's the only sport you'll hear broadcasters reference how long the game goes. And I'm guilty of this, too. But, oh, we've exceeded the three-hour mark. You never hear that in football. Like, wow, this football game's gone on for over three hours. For some reason, baseball, it's like it's filled with people that don't like, that want to get home, don't like the sport, want it to be shorter. Eh, it's probably not good for the, thing, for, the, for the sport. Bunch of people that don't want to be there and want to get home. Probably not great. Hey, we've been previewing a conference, or we are going to every day this week. Yesterday we started the Pac-12. We're going to work our way up. We'll do the ACC tomorrow. Their media days begin tomorrow in Charlotte. Get to the Big Ten on Thursday, the SEC on Friday. Today it's time to break down the Big 12. I'll give you my standings, how I predict things to lay out in the Big 12 this year, who will win the conference, and what to look for with each of these teams. As today, we preview the Big 12. If that doesn't get you amped up for the fall, I don't know what will. All right, we always start from the bottom because that's how you build suspense. Number 10, it's clear when it comes to the Big 12, it's Kansas, the most obvious bottom feeder in the Power 5. Now, they are returning almost their entire team from last year. I think they have like 18 starters back because they don't put a lot of guys in the pros. But they haven't won multiple conference games since 2008. Think about that. That's how bad they've been. So I just... Don't trust them very much. They'll be the worst team in the Big 12 again this year. They'll probably go 1-11. Maybe they win a conference game and a non-conference game. They go 2-10. They'll be pretty much the same team as last year, but they only won a couple games last year, too. They'll be bad. Once again, they'll finish it last. I put Texas Tech in ninth place. First-time head coach, which is a little concerning. Now, he wants to get back to throwing like the old Mike Leach days. That was part of the reason why the AD made the change. They wanted to bring somebody in that could get them back to their roots. Problem is, the quarterback's gone three of their top four receivers are gone, and you have a first-time head coach. So this year is going to be a real building block for Texas Tech. Maybe they hired the right guy, but it's going to take a couple years. New quarterback, bunch of new receivers for a team that wants to throw it all around the yard, and a head coach who's never been in that role before. Texas Tech, I don't think, will be very good this year either. I put him in ninth place out of ten in the Big 12. Eighth, I put West Virginia. I'm intrigued by West Virginia because I'm a big fan of JT Daniels who transferred in, but they lost their number one passer from a year ago, their number one rusher, their number one pass catcher, their top five tacklers. So it's not a great situation to be stepping into at West Virginia. And their head coach, Neil Brown, I'm not sold on. And he's been a 500 coach at West Virginia, probably on the hot seat a little bit. I put West Virginia at number eight. Finishing in seventh in the Big 12 this year, Iowa State. I'm down on Iowa State. 
I did not think they'd be a playoff team last year like most, but I did buy into the idea of, hey, Matt Campbell's interviewing for NFL jobs. He's the next big name in football coaching. I thought Iowa State would be pretty good last year and intriguing. Instead, they were about 500 and lost to Clemson in the Cheez-It Bowl. It was a huge drop-off for Iowa State. I don't think they're any better this year. In fact, this year they return only eight starters from last year's team. Maybe they're better off. But they lost their quarterback, and right now number one on their depth chart at the quarterback position is a redshirt freshman. Not great. Their offensive line is not expected to be very good, so that's also not great for a young first-time starting quarterback. They also lost Brees Hall, one of the best running backs in the country. They lost four of their top five pass catchers from last year, so I think this is just going to be a bad offense. Redshirt freshman quarterback behind a below-average offensive line without his star running back and a bunch of new wide receivers. That doesn't give me much faith in Iowa State. They also lost their top four tacklers on defense. Not great. And as I said, I'm down on Matt Campbell. I'm down on this whole program and this coach. I don't know if somebody's stock, a coach's stock, dropped more in a year than Matt Campbell, at least in a long time. He was interviewing in the NFL a year ago, and he said, ah, I want to stay at Iowa State. And we thought he was really building something. Now, I think they finished in seventh place this year. And by the way, Matt Campbell, he's under 500 on the road in his career. So I'm, I'm, out. I'm selling all my Iowa stock, Iowa State stock. I put him in seventh. Finishing in sixth in the Big 12 this year will be TCU. They're the most experienced team in the conference. They bring the quarterback back, and they have five conference games at home this year. So that helps. The big question is new head coach. But it's Sonny Dykes who's been around. He's been a head coach before. He comes into TCU with big shoes to fill. I think they'll be pretty good, especially for a first-year head coach. I put them in sixth. Then we get to the top half of the Big 12. In fifth place, I have Kansas State. They have 14 returning starters. They get their running back back, their best wide receiver, their best defensive player. And while they lost their quarterback, they bring in the experienced transfer, Adrian Martinez, to run the show. I also like their head coach, Chris uh, Chris Kleiman, who won some national championships at the FCS level. And since getting to Kansas State, he's gone 20 and 16. Not terrible for a program that, you know, outside of Bill Snyder, they've never been very successful. So I think you have a good coach. you got an experienced team. You bring in a veteran quarterback. You get some of your best weapons on offense and defense back. I think Kansas State could be pretty tough this year. I put him in fifth. Then we get to the top tier of teams. I think there's a, a gap between the top four and everybody else. I put Oklahoma State at number four. They were in the conference championship a year ago. Problem is, they lost seven players on defense. So seven of their 11 defensive starters are gone, including their top four tacklers. They also lost their defensive coordinator, who was the guy behind that defense. And while Mike Gundy, the head coach, is an offensive guy, it was the defense that led Oklahoma State to their success last year. Now you're losing almost the entire starting lineup and the mastermind behind that defense. They led the conference last year in the Big 12 in fewest points allowed. They're not going to do that again this year. And when it comes to the schedule, they have to go to Baylor and to Oklahoma, I think the two best teams in the conference. So the schedule doesn't help out Oklahoma State either. I think they take a step back from a year ago, and I think they're the worst of the top-tier teams in the Big 12. I put them in fourth. Then we get to the top three. I put Texas in third. I don't think Texas is back just yet. They are returning 14 starters from last year's team, although that team was under 500. They are returning probably the best running back in the country. The big question will be quarterback. Quinn Ewers, do they have the quarterback now? If Quinn Ewers is better than I believe, then yeah, maybe Texas can go win the conference. He was the number one quarterback in his class. 
redshirted last year with Ohio State. If he comes in and he's like Trevor Lawrence was as a rookie, then yeah, Texas will be fine. I don't think he'll have that huge of an impact like a Trevor Lawrence right away. I think he may be good. I don't think he'll be good enough to suddenly take a 5-7 and seven Texas team to a Big 12 championship in one offseason. He's a young kid. He's going to be thrown out there as what should be a true freshman. He reclassified to get money, redshirted at Ohio State. I don't have enough faith that this kid's going to come in with Arch Manning looming and go win the Big 12. I think Texas is still another season away, so I put them in third. I put Brent Venables in Oklahoma in second place, which means Baylor is my champion. More on them in just a second. First for Oklahoma, a lot of turnover. This is my concern with USC, but the difference is for USC, you have Lincoln Riley, who's been there before and has proven himself as a head coach. Venables, we have no idea. We all assume he's going to be a good head coach. Everyone's wanted to hire him for years, but we just haven't seen it. And a lot of times, we don't trust things until we see it for the first time. Maybe it's a fault of the human nature, but it's how we are. For Oklahoma, only 10 starters are back from last year's team. You have a new quarterback. You have a new head coach, who was a first-time head coach. You lost your leading rusher from last year's team. You lost four of your top five pass catchers. You lost your top two tacklers. In fact, 40% roster turnover for Oklahoma. 40% of their roster was not on the team last year. So you're changing almost half the roster, including the quarterback position, changing the coaching staff, first-time head coach. There's just a lot of questions here for Oklahoma for year one of Venables. Maybe he'll turn himself into one of the best head coaches in college football, just as he did as a defensive coordinator. But just too many moving pieces for year one. I don't think they win the conference right away. Which takes me to Baylor. I think Baylor wins the conference this year. They were in the conference championship game last year. I think they're back there this year. I think they'll have the best defense in the conference. And if you take out that COVID year, which was awkward for many reasons, and harder on other teams than some, if you remove that COVID year, the last two seasons, Baylor is 23-5, and which is the most wins of a Big 12 team. Dave Aranda, I think, is a really good coach. In fact, maybe the best coach in the conference. He's 5-2 and two against ranked teams at Baylor. Now, Baylor did lose a lot of pieces from last year's team. But I think you get a, a team that will have the best defense that was already in the conference championship game a year ago and maybe has the best coach in the conference. Why I like Utah over USC? Because of the coaching and the continuity. Same idea for Baylor, Oklahoma. Baylor, you're giving me Dave Aranda, who's been there for a couple years and has shown me he can win the conference. Venables, right now, I think he's a big question mark. Maybe he'll prove me wrong, but I can't trust that. Comes in year one, turns over half the roster, and goes win and wins the Big 12. But we'll see. I think Baylor wins the conference. Oklahoma in second, followed by Texas, Oklahoma State. And then a drop-off to the rest of the conference, including Kansas State in fifth, TCU in sixth. I think Iowa State will continue to regress. They're seventh. West Virginia in eighth. Texas Tech ninth. Kansas once again in last place. But I'd also tell you I think the Big 12 is the most open of any conference this year. Baylor, Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma State. I could see any of them winning. And maybe we do get a surprise like Iowa State. Or maybe Kansas State steps up and even finds themselves in the Big 12 championship game. When you look at the odds in Vegas, they have the Big 12 as the most unpredictable conference in college football this year in terms of predicting a winner. I'm just going to go back to the well and think it's Baylor again like last year. We'll see how Venables does in year one. Hey, when we come back, sticking with the Big 12, two things. Number one, we got news about a potential Pac-12, Big 12 merger ending before it ever started, and also the biggest storylines to track in the Big 12 this year once the season gets underway. We'll get to that next. More Midday Show. 
right here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Coming up, the biggest storylines for the Big 12 this year. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Breaking down a conference today. Yesterday we looked at the Pac-12. Today the Big 12 will work our way towards the SEC on Friday. But don't worry, we'll be all over the SEC all week long with the media days going on. In fact, coming up in the final hour today, we'll get to different audio from the first 24 hours of uh, SEC media days. Some of the biggest takeaways. And I'll give you my thoughts on what some of the coaches have said in Atlanta so far. Shane Beamer will be talking with the media here this afternoon for the Gamecocks. But today, we also focus on the Big 12 as well. This is a good week to look ahead with no, really, live sports going on, and we get ready for the football season and trying to give you a head start on the upcoming fall. Friend of the show, Josh Pate, has his expression with his podcast, uh, uh, Win the Water Cooler, I believe is what he says. Right, when you go to work, you're gonna see, he wants to make you sound like the smartest guy when you talk football with your coworkers. Well, we're here to help as well. Get you ready for the football season, which is about six weeks out. Before we dive into the big storylines for the Big 12, we did get news last night about this Big 12, Pac-12 alliance already coming apart. And I can understand why. Apparently the Big 12 walked away. I don't blame them. Big 12, I think, is in a better position than the Pac-12. The Pac-12 is more desperate. I don't know if the Big 12, I don't know if they need right now the help of the Pac-12. Now, those are the two conferences that are worst off. So they could look at each other and say, hey, why don't we just team up? It's almost like uh, when, uh, when uh, people are being paired off at uh, a get-together or maybe like go back to your high school days where people had to ask out others to the prom and then you get down to the end and it's like one guy and one girl, the only ones left. And All right, well, we might as well go together. Similar to Pac-12 and Big 12. Like, all right, everyone's ditching us. We're the worst two conferences around. We might as well team up, put two heads together, and hopefully that's better than our one. But I don't know how much the Pac-12 offers. What I think the Pac-12 has left for them is the TV times, the fact that they are in the West Coast. Because when you watch college football on a Saturday, right, you watch your games throughout the day. Now, maybe you're already in bed by the time we get to Pac-12 after dark. Maybe you go out instead, you stop paying attention to college football, whatever it is. I could tell you personally, as somebody who travels, I have the Citadel games, maybe I'm driving home on a Saturday. By the time I get home, all right, I sit down, it's great to have, or you go out with buddies, you get back, and you got uh, the Pac-12 kicking off, you know, after 10 o'clock, they play until 1, th- I love that, being a late night person myself, I love having football at the end of the night, and if you go and you look at the numbers, those games actually do pretty well, outside of like the SEC and the Big Ten, you know, Clemson has the most games with uh, over, I think it's a million viewers, and then it's a bunch of Pac-12 teams. People are watching late at night, and that's the one thing they have to offer. You're not going to make an SEC team or a Big Ten team play at 10 p.m. You probably don't have to. But that's what the Pac-12 offers, that because they play on the West Coast, on the East Coast, where 66% of sports viewers live in the Eastern time zone, you get late-night football. That's the one thing the Pac-12 has going for them. At the end of the day, even if it's not a great matchup, 
You got football on from 10 to 1. That's what the Pac-12 brings to the table. When it comes to the Big 12, I just gave you my rundown of how I think the standings will shake out at year's end. I already did touch on a few of these things, but let's get to the five biggest storylines for the Big 12 this football season. This is a tasty bargain. It's the Tasty Top 5. I'm tasty. Number 5. It is Kansas, right? Can Kansas get out of the basement? Can Kansas turn themselves around? If we were to eliminate one team from every conference, there's a couple of clear-cut candidates. Like, you're getting rid of Vanderbilt in the SEC. Everybody kind of has. It's almost like that friend group. You all have that friend that everybody picks on. You love them to death. And they never stop being a friend. But there's always got to be that one person at the bottom of the totem pole that you always turn the attention to, maybe to take the, uh, the, uh, take the attention off yourself or to try to blame somebody else. There's always that one person that, uh, you know, they, they get picked on a little bit more. That's Vanderbilt in the SEC, probably Duke in the ACC, certainly Kansas in the Big 12. Can they get out of the basement this year? Can they start to turn around that program? Number four, I would say Matt Campbell, as I said last segment. I mean, he was uh, all the rage in coaching circles. Had a chance to potentially go to the NFL. We thought he'd lead Iowa State to the playoff last year, and Iowa State was a huge disappointment. Can they be better this year, or are they moving in the wrong direction? The third biggest storyline for this Big 12 season is just simply the winner. This conference could be interesting to track as the season goes on because, as I referenced, Vegas sees it as the most wide-open conference of the Power Five. And there's a top tier with four interesting teams that all will be competing, all with questions. Can Oklahoma State replace all they lost on defense? Will Quinn Ewers elevate Texas to a championship? Can Venables get it done in year one? Can Baylor repeat? Which takes me to my second biggest story in the Big 12, which is Quinn Ewers. Will he be as advertised? Will he lead Texas back? There's a lot of pressure on him for a number of different reasons. Number one, just the fact that he's playing at Texas. There's always pressure. It's like being a Cowboys quarterback. All right, there's always going to be pressure to try to lead Texas where they want to go. Number two, the belief is that Texas is back, as we speculate every year. But that falls on the shoulder of the young Quinn Ewers. And then number three, of course, you have Arch Manning coming in next year. So you better do a good job, otherwise you're going to have to go somewhere else. And the biggest storyline to me in the Big 12 is Brent Venables. You know, we've been waiting for years for this opportunity. We really don't know how he is going to be as a head coach. Sometimes when you wait so long or you right, you, you build up this, the uh, expectations in your head. If you're looking forward to the movie coming out, maybe you read the book, and now they're going to adapt it into a movie. But it's coming out a year from now. Right? And you see a preview and you see the cast and you get really excited. You really like the book. By the time you get to the movie, the expectations in your mind are through the roof. For Venables, we've been waiting for years. He's turned down opportunities. Now he winds up with a a big program in Oklahoma, replacing Lincoln Riley. It's probably only built the expectations. Like, all right, we've been hearing about this guy becoming a head coach for six years. Now we finally get to see it. And it's going to happen at Oklahoma. They're the preseason favorite in a wide-open conference, but they have a lot of moving pieces. How will Venables do as a first-time head coach? That's what I'm most interested in in the Big 12 this year. Most interested in Venables, right behind him. How does Quinn Ewers do with Texas? And then maybe most importantly, who's going to win the conference? The biggest things to watch in the Big 12 this year. When we come back, we wrap up Hour 1. Another example of how cheap one Major League Baseball organization really is. And we'll get to that next. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it.
on the Morrow Midday Show. It's the Morrow Midday Show. Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. As we wrap up Hour 1 on this Tuesday, we'll look ahead to the All-Star Game. We'll get to our mid-season Major League Baseball awards coming up at the top of next hour, less than 10 minutes from now. But as we get ready for the All-Star Game, another example of how cheap one Major League Baseball organization is. Uh, Yesterday, they make all the All-Stars available to the media. So somebody was interviewing Paul Blackburn, who's an all-star. He's a pitcher for the Oakland A's. And the Oakland A's finished up the first half they played in Houston. The A's were not going to help Blackburn. He had to get from Houston to L.A. for the All-Star game. He was booked on a commercial flight for the All-Star game. The Houston Astros apparently got word of this, and they offered him a ride on their private jet where they're sending all their All-Stars to the All-Star game. And Blackburn said at first it was a little awkward. They're a division rival. He doesn't really know the guys. He got on the bus to go to the Jet. They were looking at him like, who's this guy in the bus? He was looking at them like, who are all these guys getting on? But he said once they got on the plane, everything was fine. He appreciated. He was very appreciative of the Astros. He thanked them. I guess it was Dusty Baker's idea. And Dusty said, hey, why not? He's going to the same place. He's in town. We just played them. Let's take him with us. But if you're the Oakland A's, you're, lone all, you're going to make your all-star get on a – and they probably weren't paying then, right? Or maybe that's why he had to go on a commercial flight. You're going to make him go on a commercial flight out to L.A.? Which, by the way, you're, the team was heading back to Oakland. Like, I, I, Couldn't he go back with the team? And fi- I, don't, I don't know. Maybe not. I guess Oakland's far enough away. But it's like in the movie Moneyball, where they made the players start to have to pay for their own drinks at the vending machine in the clubhouse. Here's a real-life example, where the Oakland A's were making this guy pay his own way to the All-Star game. Fortunately, the Astros helped out. Hour two next This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait, there's more. On ESPN Radio. Second hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, our midseason Major League Baseball Awards. Plus, we'll get to our Tuesday Top Ten and the return of Trent's Takes coming up later on this hour as well. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. And the podcasts are also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Head over there and click on our show page. Find the show podcasted right there. You can always get in touch with the show online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Click on our show page and leave a comment there. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Or you can always text the show 843-608-1734. 
or join the conversation on the phones, 843-721-9500. On Twitter, Brad said, the home run derby was all right last night. Didn't like that it was during the day. It looks better at night. You know, this is something that he did not think about, but I agree. Because it was out in L.A., it began at 5 o'clock West Coast time. And I did not think about it while I was watching it. But I do agree. You can certainly see things clearer at night. Maybe it's just a better look. Maybe you prefer night baseball than watching it during the day. And they also did reference this, and I didn't really put two and two together at the time, but they were even talking in the broadcast about, you know, hard to see the baseball, the shadows coming in, which is what you deal with during a regular baseball game, let alone a home run derby. The pitcher may be in the sun and the batter's in the shadow, and you have to catch the ball, pick it up as it goes from the bright background into the, the shadows that you're batting in. So that is a fair point. They don't want to start it too late out on the West Coast. So it was 5 o'clock their time, 8 o'clock Eastern time, and uh, the sun was still out. And I didn't really think of that, but I do agree now that Brad brings it up. Yeah, probably would be better if it was fully dark out. You could see the baseball traveling. Maybe it just looks better on the TV screen as well. And for the hitters, it'd probably be easier. And then they'd also switch baseballs for the extra 30 seconds or extra minute. And Eduardo Perez kept saying that. This is going to take a little adjusting to, uh, for the hitters. Eh, I don't know. What's with all the changes here? Um, now I've never been to an all-star game or a home run derby, at least not in the big league level. I've been to a handful in the minors, but we had family friends that because of the sponsorship and the company they worked for, yada, 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 they were able to go each year. And I've heard from multiple people that the home run derby is always a lot more fun to be at than the all-star game. Of course, especially if you're seated in the outfield, but that's the real thrill. So, you know, it's out in LA. For those that were looking to go, uh, the home run derby is the place to be as opposed to just the all-star game tonight. It's, you know, it's an exhibition baseball game. It's not like you're getting to meet all the players tonight. You get to see them all in the same field. But the home run derby is uh, typically a more enjoyable experience for the fans just watching guys blast off and trying to catch some of those home run balls. We closed out last hour talking about Paul Blackburn, who is going to have to take a regular flight from Houston to L.A. for the all-star game. It's his first All-Star experience. He's the only All-Star for the Oakland A's, so the A's were going to make him fly just on a regular commercial flight from Houston after they played the Astros to go out to L.A. for the All-Star game tonight. The Houston Astros apparently found out about this, and Dusty Baker offered him a seat on their chartered flight to L.A. Makes things a lot easier. But we know that the Oakland A's historically are very cheap. I mean, they made a movie about it called Moneyball, which is based on a book written about it. And the Oakland A's shed a lot of payroll this past year and never pay for their stars. But they did not want to send Paul Blackburn out to L.A. on some sort of private jet. They were making him go commercial. Now, the other thing, too, Trent, you were just traveling. And everybody that's been traveling this summer, really since the pandemic started, knows how difficult it can be. Imagine Paul Blackburn trying to get to the All-Star game. And with all the delays and cancellations and flight issues... The Oakland A's were putting it in the hands of just a commercial flight and an airline and the airport in Houston to try to get Paul Blackburn out to L.A. for his first ever All-Star game. Can't do it. Can't do it right now, especially during these times. I believe you know labor shortages and things of that nature are really affecting uh, the airlines. But I tell you what, Luke, it was, uh, it was very difficult to get to my destination and even more difficult to get home. So, yeah, I mean, just get him a private jet, charter a plane. What is it from, you know, up to L.A.? That's only, what, a two-and-a-half, three-hour flight? That's, what, 30000 for a small jet? Come on, A's. What are we doing? Seriously. With the money, even though they are towards the lower end still, Major League Baseball, these teams make so much money, and they don't spend any of it, uh, certainly on the payroll. 
I tried to call my private jet guy. He, ah. didn't, he didn't answer. Your broker? Yeah, yeah he didn't answer. He's busy, so I couldn't get an answer from him. But then I Googled it. And even if you did like a mid-sized private jet, it says 24000 to 48000 Ah, come on. That's a drop in the bucket for the Oakland A's with the amount of money these Major League Baseball teams make. You can't spend $48,000. That's on the high side. You can't spend $40,000 for your one all-star. He's the only reason why anyone's going to talk about the Oakland A's in tonight's game. You can't spend 40000 to thank the guy for his first all-star experience and send them out there. I think that's pretty lame. I think what, what are they doing with their draft picks? I mean, are they sending him, you know, on a on a commercial flight all the way in the back? Like, you get three connections? I mean, what are we doing here? Yeah, they're sending them like a bus ticket. <laughs> we'll see you in a couple of weeks when you get out here. Just roll with the John Madden bus. Yeah, yeah hop on that. Right. Get Take you about 15 hours. Yeah. You'll be here. Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> now, they'd probably be more prone to roll out the red carpet for the draft picks because you got to try to, you know, Bring him in. Sure. And then once you get him in the organization, oh, by the way, that's the only <laughs> private flight you're ever going to be on as a member of the Oakland Ace. I don't know how they travel from, you know, I assume private jet from game to game. Now, I looked it up because, uh, number one, my geography is not great. But number two, I always forget how big California truly is. <laughs> so I said, Oakland, you know, how far can it be? It is about a five-hour drive. So that is a, it's about 400 miles. So that is pretty far to go from Oakland to L.A. if he could fly back with the A's, and then try to get to L.A., I guess it's easier just to fly directly to your destination. I'm not one of those guys that I don't like flying out of a different airport, mm. and then, like, when you fly back, you land, and then you got to drive, like, three hours home. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. That's the worst. I want to be. I want to get my feet down in my final destination, uh, even, if it's, even, if I, even if it's not a direct flight. I'll take a layover in an airport as opposed to landing and then having to get into the car and drive home. I agree. Wholeheartedly. So, so, I, so I'm with Blackburn that – Maybe he was given the option, you could fly back with us to Oakland, then you got to get your way to L.A. And he said, you know what, I'm just going to fly from Houston to L.A. I'd rather do that too. But imagine they stick Blackburn like on a middle seat on a commercial flight out to L.A. for the All-Star. You must really feel like an All-Star. You feel like a big shot when that happens. So I'm not a fan of the Houston Astros, but props to uh, Dusty Baker and company for helping him out, getting him on their flight, and getting him out there uh, in a much better way. Hopefully everyone has... uh, some smooth travel experiences as well this summer and into the fall. Because you never know what you're going to get. Hey, we are at the midway point of the Major League Baseball season. So let's break it down and hand out some awards. Uh, it's time for our uh, 2022 midseason Major League Baseball Awards. We have a long list of awards to get to. Of various things from the first half of the season. Trent will run off the award. I'll give you the winner for the midseason awards in Major League Baseball. Luke, will start with a massive one, obviously. The MVP midway through. Who you got, sir? You got to bring value to your team. So I know everybody's blown away with Shohei Otani and how he can pitch and he can throw. The Angels are in fourth place. How valuable is he truly to that team? If you take him off, what, are they in fifth place? Aaron Judge, and it pains me to say it, Aaron Judge, I think, brings far more value. The Yankees have the best record in baseball. And when you look at that team, if you remove Aaron Judge, that lineup becomes a lot worse. Got a bunch of guys hitting 220 and not with a bunch of home runs. Aaron Judge is on pace to potentially hit 60 homers. The Yankees have the best record in baseball. And by the way, when he doesn't play, they're 3-4. and four. They're under 500. I think that shows his value. I'd also say Jordan Alvarez of the Astros, he has a better OPS than Aaron Judge, and the Astros have the second-best record. 
So my ballot would go Aaron Judge, number one. He's the MVP. I would vote for Alvarez of the Astros before Shohei Otani. He's an incredible player, but you have to bring value. I'm not seeing that value right now from Otani with the Angels. Luke, next one here. Most outstanding player midway through. Who you got? This is where I'll give Otani his flowers. He is the most outstanding player because he pitches and he uh, hits. And on the mound, right, he's got like a two and a half ERA. He's an all-star in both categories. But again, when it comes to value, he's been with the Angels for five years. They've never had a winning season. So I can't give him the most valuable player award, even though he won it last year. A lot of people give it to him just because he plays both sides of the game. I also need, maybe I have high standards. But I also, if you're going to do that, you got to be good at both parts, and you have to be important to your team. And the Angels are 12 games under 500, wherever they are. So I save the most outstanding award for Otani. What he does is simply outstanding, but he's not the most valuable. He can win the most outstanding award instead. Luke, who is your Cy Young winner midway through the season so far? I'm going with uh, that Sandy uh, Alcantara of the Marlins, 1.7 ERA. Leads the league in starts for the second straight year. He's number one in innings pitched. So you're going to see Clayton Kershaw start the All-Star game tonight because it's in his home ballpark. But Sandy has as many starts with seven innings pitched as Kershaw has just starts in general this year. I appreciate a guy who in 2022 takes the baseball. He's going to give me seven strong innings. He wants to be out there. Nowadays, all these guys are going five innings. He's been a real ace for this Marlins team that he goes out there for seven, pitching to a 1.75 ERA. I think he's right now the most impressive pitcher this season in Major League Baseball. Luke, rookie of the year, who's the best young gun so far? I think we saw him last night, Julio Rodriguez. You may not have been familiar with him before the uh, home run derby last night, but that was his coming out party. He's on a Seattle Mariners team that would be in the playoffs if the season ended right now, and he's number one in war on the Mariners, meaning he's their most valuable player for a playoff team, doing it as a 21-year-old rookie. Rodriguez is very good. He's going to be this next group of these young stars. And I say next group, I mean Soto's only 23, but Soto's been in the league for a while. You talk about Ronald Acuna, you talk about Fernando Tatis. Rodriguez is now that next group that he just came into the league. He's even younger. He's only 21. He's going to be a great player for a long time. Forget Alex Rodriguez in Seattle. It's now Julio Rodriguez. And I'd also say he's in the AL. In the NL, I would say Michael Harris of the Braves. The Braves were 22-24 and 24 when they called him up. They have gone 34-14 and 14 when he's in the starting lineup. He made Drew Waters expendable in that trade a couple weeks ago, and it was a lot like Ronald Acuna a couple years ago. When the Braves brought up Acuna, they turned their season around. When they brought up Michael Harris, they turned their season around. So he's brought value to the team. I would say Julio Rodriguez in the AL, Michael Harris Jr. in the NL, the two rookies of the year. Luke, manager of the year, who you got? I'm going to give you one in each league again. I would say Buck Showalter in the NL for the Mets because you saw how the Mets have performed the last couple of years. They get an adult in the room, a veteran who's done it for a long time, and despite not having DeGrom just yet and Scherzer for half the year, they have the second-best record in the NL, and they're in first place ahead of the defending World Series champs. That's a credit to Buck Showalter. On the flip side, in the AL, you got to go Brandon Hyde right now, manager of the Orioles. They have not won more than 54 games his first three years there. They have 46 wins right now at the All-Star break. They just went on like a 10-game winning streak to get to 500. They're in the toughest division in baseball. They're fighting for a playoff spot. Their win total at the start of the year was 62. That's what Vegas had. They're at 46 right now at the All-Star break. And they're doing it with the lowest payroll in baseball. So I don't think anybody is doing a better job than Brandon Hyde in Baltimore. Lowest payroll in baseball, worst team in the league last couple years. Right now they're 500 and they're in the playoff race at the All-Star break. 
and I don't think anybody saw that coming. Luke, let's flip it on its head. Worst manager midway through the season. Who you got? I'll give one in each league for this as well. Tony La Russa in the AL. It's been a bit of a disaster. A lot of people thought the White Sox could win the pennant this year. They're in third place right now at 500. Now, they have started to play a little bit better in recent weeks uh, heading into the All-Star break. But La Russa, some of the decisions as well, when he intentionally walks guys in the middle of at-bats, he intentionally walks somebody when they had two strikes on him. Uh, some of the decisions he's making, uh, I'm not an ageist, but he's almost 80 years old. He leaves you scratching your head. What is he even doing in the dugout? They're in third place despite all the talent they have. LaRusso's been bad. In the NL, I got to go with Gabe Kapler of the Giants. Mm. 107 wins last year to lead the league. Right now, they're 12 games back. They just went through a 3-12 and stretch. If you look at the NL, the worst job done this year so far, got to be Gabe Kapler for Trent's team, the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, that's disappointing, Luke. Now, most surprising team midway through. Who you got, sir? I go back to the Orioles. They're the first team since 1891 to have a nine-game winning streak a season after losing at least 110 games. They were the worst team in baseball. That's why they picked. You know, it's funny. The same weekend that they just drafted first overall because they were the worst team in the league last year was the same weekend that you know they got to 500 and back in the playoff race this year. It's been quite the turnaround. Nobody saw this. Nobody saw this coming a month ago. So the Orioles certainly been the most surprising team. I would also say the Yankees, just how good they've been, I would say, is a surprise as well. Uh, maybe even the Mets, how good they've been. But the Orioles, compared to expectations, they've been the most surprising team this year. Luke, most disappointing team so far. Who do you have, sir? I'll stick in the AL. It's the Angels. Do you remember when they were in first place earlier this year? Baseball is such a long season that you forget at one point the Angels. We were talking about the four uh, first place teams for New York and L.A., yeah, now the Angels, they're in fourth place. They're 20 games out of first. They fire their manager. You have Otani, you have Mike Trout, and you can't even get out of fourth place. I thought the Angels could potentially win that division this year. They're horrendous. They uh, have become a bit of a punchline. The Angels are the most disappointing team in the league. Luke, biggest pretender this season so far? I should probably say my Red Sox, <laughs> but I can't bring myself to do that. I still have faith in that team. I'm going to say the Twins. The Twins at least lead their division. The Red Sox right now, if the season ended today, they wouldn't even be in the playoffs. So I don't know if you're considering them a contender anyways. But the Twins lead their division. They're on pace to be a playoff team. They're in a bad division. And I don't trust their pitching staff. Their starters, the starting pitcher on their team with the most innings pitched, averages five and a third innings per start. It's a philosophy of the Twins. And then they go to their bullpen. But the bullpen is 10th in the AL and ERA, and they've converted just over half of their saves. I don't trust this Twins team. Plus, every year, the Twins get to the playoffs, and then they're swept by the Yankees. So, they're a good regular season team, but they're in a bad division. I don't think the Twins are a realistic threat in the AL this year. Luke, the team with the most pressure right now. A couple come to mind. You could say the Mets. They're in first place. They've been doing it without their best pieces. They haven't won a World Series in 36 years. I have a lot of Mets friends. They're very excited. They feel like maybe this is the year. So the Mets, there's some pressure to keep this up. Don't let your fans down again. I think suddenly there's become some pressure on the Mariners. They have the longest playoff drought of any North American team in sports, not just baseball. And uh, they just went on the longest winning streak they've had in over 20 years. They're suddenly giving their fans hope. They're a playoff team today. So I think there's some pressure on the Mariners now. You built up the expectations. You gave their fans some hope. You can't let them down the second half of the year. But I do think the team with the most pressure is the Yankees. They were at least on pace to set a record for most wins. They're not on that pace anymore.
but they still are on pace to win 112 games. They've got the best record in baseball. They've had the best record for a number of years. They haven't won a world, or I should say, uh, really since the start of the season, they've had the best record. They haven't won a World Series in 13 years, or the Yankees, after all. And also, everything's going right. I lived this as a Red Sox fan in 2018 when they were the best team from start to finish. Your stars are playing great. Everybody is healthy. Your role players are having career years. Everything is going the Yankees' way. It has to lead in a World Series. Otherwise, it'd be a big disappointment for the Yankees. Luke, uh, next one here. The best face in a new place. I'm going to go Freddie Freeman. Now, I don't like how things ended with him going to L.A. and the whole debacle with Atlanta and firing his agent. But a lot of the free agent moves this offseason have not worked out. But Freddie Freeman has a higher OPS this year than last year. He leads the NL in hits. He's batting 321, which outside of that shortened COVID season, uh, 321 would be a career best for Freeman. And the Dodgers have the second-best record in baseball. So Freddie is working out. Most uh, free agent moves this offseason are not working out. Freeman is one of the rare guys that he's been fantastic for the Dodgers. He went back home to L.A. Uh, I know he had all the drama with his agent, but he's playing well. The Dodgers are playing well. Seems to be a good match. Piggybacking off that, worst off-season move, Luke Morrow? A handful of them, but they all come from the Texas Rangers. Mm. The Rangers spent $565 million this off-season. Of all the money baseball teams spent in free agency, the Rangers spent almost 25% of it, and they're eight games under five hundred. They spent $565 million this off-season. They're still in third place under five hundred, eight games uh, under five hundred. The Rangers, what a disappointment. Uh, Corey Seager, I know he's an all-star, but he hasn't been great. Marcus Simeon was terrible uh, in the first half. The Rangers just had the worst offseason. They tried to be aggressive, and it's blown up in their face. Uh, Luke, next one here. Player you'd like to see traded? Juan Soto, Mm. just because of the the storylines and the drama. I don't think it's good for baseball to have a 23-year-old star be on the move from Washington because he wants more than half a billion dollars. I don't think this is a great trend for Major League Baseball, but... I love the storylines that if, uh, you know, Buster only reported last night that executives believe Soto is going to be traded in the next two weeks, whichever team trades from, they're going to have to give up the farm, but you're going to get two and a half years of Juan Soto. And then you're probably going to have to give him like a $500 million contract is what he's seeking. It's going to be really interesting to see what the nationals get back for him and where he winds up. Will it be the Yankees? Will it somehow be the Dodgers? Will it be in that own division with the Mets? You look at the big spenders that can afford, can afford a, a Juan Soto. Where is he going to go? It's going to have a big impact on the next potentially decade of, of Major League Baseball, and it may happen in the next two weeks. So I don't think it's great for baseball, but I do think it's great for the next two weeks to wonder where he's going to wind up and what that trade's going to be. Juan Soto's the guy that I'm keeping my eye on the most as we uh, approach the trade deadline. Luke, the team that needs the trade deadline the most, as you were just mentioning. Yeah, there's a handful. I think the Padres could use some reinforcements, the Brewers to try to keep up in the NL, but I'm going to go back to the Yankees. Uh, Theo Epstein in 2018, when the Cubs finally broke the curse and won the World Series, they went out and they traded for Chapman at the um, trade deadline to bolster their bullpen. And at the time, Theo said, if not now, when? We're a first-place team. We're trying to break a curse. We have to go all in. Similar for the Yankees. Again, haven't won in 13 years. They have the best record in baseball. This may be Aaron Judge's final year in New York. If not now, when? you got to go for it this year. They're the best team in baseball, but they have a losing record against the Astros this year. I don't know if they truly are the best team in baseball on paper, but they're playing like it uh, in the standings. And they do have some holes, whether it's a few spots in the lineup, but especially they could use some more uh, pitching depth. So if you're the Yankees, I think they're the team that really uh, needs the deadline the most to make sure they end this year with the World Series. Luke, last one here. The pitcher you'd most want on the mound so far? 
It's interesting. I think it's a couple of old guys. You know, we thought Justin Verlander was washed up. Now he's 39 years old, and he's got like a sub-2 ERA. He's been fantastic for a really good Houston team. He'd be a candidate. But I think I'd go with Max Scherzer. There's a lot of good young pitching talent, no doubt. I gave my Cy Young Award to a young guy in Miami. But I think Max Scherzer, the way he's pitching this year, uh, he's been fantastic for the Mets. And just that uh, bulldog mentality. You know, he was upset when um, – uh, he just has great emotion. He's not so much like a Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole got upset when Billy Crystal too, took too long with the first pitch. But Scherzer, he just wants the baseball. He wants to mow down, uh, mow guys down. This is why the Mets went out and got him. And in that big series in Atlanta last week, he pitched a gem to win the opener. If I had one game to win right now, I think I'm going with Max Scherzer on the mound. And those are midseason Major League Baseball awards. When we come back, the All-Star Games tonight for Major League Baseball. We'll get to our Tuesday Top Ten. The most memorable moments from All-Star Game history. That's next. It's more Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, the most memorable moments from All-Star Game history in Major League Baseball. If you ever miss anything from the show, such as our mid-season awards from last segment, you can find the show on demand. Just search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. You know, it's interesting, the Home Run Derby, you go back to the 80s and look at some of the winners. Uh, Dave Parker won in 85 with six home runs. You had uh, Daryl Strawberry win in 86 with four home runs. Um, You even had the 88 home run derby canceled because of rain. How things have changed to nowadays. When uh, yesterday Julio Rodriguez is hitting over 30 home runs in a round. Things are much different now in terms of how the derby is being played, but also the game itself. And uh, what a difference about 35 years make from how the derbies were in the 80s compared to now. Same day with the All-Star Games. They used to mean a lot more than they do now. It's just an exhibition game. Uh, but we still have that going on tonight, 8 p.m. on Fox. We do a top 10 list every Tuesday, so I figured today let's get in the uh, time machine and, and look back at the 10 most memorable moments from All-Star Game history for Major League Baseball. Time for the Tuesday Top 10, where we rank anything from quarterbacks to cheeseburgers right here on the Morrow Midday Show. Interested? Most of these are from personal experience, but some of them predate me and probably you as well. But they're memorable in in terms of the importance or just you hear about these moments. Number 10, most memorable All-Star Game moments for Major League Baseball. 2000, when Chipper Jones went 3-for-3 while playing in Atlanta. The All-Star Game was in Atlanta in 2000. Chipper Jones went 3-for-3 with a home run in his home ballpark. He's one of just 13 players to have three hits and a homer in an All-Star Game, and he did it in his own stadium over 20 years ago. Number nine, you probably don't remember this one, but Ted Williams hit the first walk-off in All-Star Game history back in 1941. It was also during DiMaggio's hitting streak. 
So you had what DiMaggio was doing for the Yankees. Ted Williams, obviously, as always, having a good year with the rival. And then when they came together in the All-Star game, which was a big deal back then, Ted Williams delivered the game-winning hit, the first walk-off in All-Star game history at the time. Number eight of the most memorable moments from All-Star game history, the 2008 All-Star game. Now, this was the final All-Star game at the original Yankee Stadium. And the game ended up going 15 innings. It's the longest All-Star game ever. The AL tied it in the eighth. They went on to win it in extra innings. I remember this game. I remember where I was. I remember where I was sitting. I was watching it with my dad that night. We stayed up for all 15 innings. We were happy the AL eventually won. But it was uh, a big deal because it was the final All-Star game at Yankee Stadium in the final year of the original Yankee Stadium. If you've ever been to the Yankee Stadiums, the old one I think is much better than the new one. Uh, and so that was a big deal uh, with how historic it was. And, of course, you know, Monument Park. And you go back to the days of Babe Ruth and everything, and that was the final year, so it was a big deal. You had Jeter and Mariano in the game and everything. So 2008 All-Star game, plus it went 15 innings, ended on a walk-off. That's number eight. Number seven of the most memorable All-Star games, I go with 2013 for similar reasons. The 2013 All-Star game. It was the final appearance from Mariano Rivera, who was retiring that year. The All-Star game was at City Field in New York, the Mets Stadium. And so you had Matt Harvey starting the game. You had Mariano pitching later on to, uh, at the time, New York legends. Matt Harvey, not so much anymore, but he was the Dark Knight. This was at the height of his fame. And it was a big deal that he started the game. You had Mariano pitching. It was in New York. It felt big. The 2013 All-Star game. Number six, most memorable moments. Fred McGriff. Uh, when he was with the Braves at the time, pinch hit game-tying home run in the bottom of the ninth of the 1994 All-Star game. He had a pinch hit game-tying home run in the ninth. The NL then won it in the 10th. And this was 1994 when they would then go on strike a few weeks later, so there was no World Series. This was also before interleague play. So the All-Star game was a big deal, and because there was no World Series that year, the All-Star game was kind of like the World Series. The NL beat the AL. Uh, and so that was like the big win of that season. Nobody was a winner because they canceled the World Series and took a while for baseball to recover. But Fred McGriff's uh, coming off the bench to tie up the game in the ninth to allow the NL to win in 94. That's number six. Number five, Torrey Hunter robbing Barry Bonds of a home run in the 2002 All-Star game. I mean, this was the height of Barry Bonds and his home run hitting. And it looked like he had one. I think it was the very first inning, if I remember correctly. First at bat. And it was in Milwaukee, so if memory serves, it would have been the bottom of the first. And Torrey Hunter, who was a fantastic center fielder, went up and made a heck of a catch. And you probably remember it. Barry Bonds picked him up on his shoulders afterwards, you know, as uh, Torrey Hunter was running into the dugout after making that catch. But it was a heck of a catch. You see it all the time, and it was a big play at the time. That year was also memorable because that was when the All-Star game ended in a tie, which was pretty awkward. And uh, Bud Selig was very upset, and he implemented the rule afterwards that home field advantage will be on the line in All-Star games. So 2002 is number five on the list, but most notably, Torrey Hunter's catch. The fourth most memorable moment from All-Star Game history, you go way back to 1949. And this maybe should be number one because of the impact it would have in the future, unlike some of these other moments. But 1949 was the first All-Star Game with African-American players. It was a couple years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier and was the first time he was able to play in an All-Star Game in 1949, which, of course, is a, a huge moment moving forward for the sport. Top three moments in All-Star Game history. I would say Pedro Martinez is number three in 1999. The 99 All-Star Game was at Fenway Park in Boston. 
And they brought out Ted Williams on the golf cart, and it was uh, a great moment that guys still talk about today of, of these great hitters, Tony Gwynn and Sosa and McGuire and Bonds and Cal Ripken were all out there with their chance to meet Ted Williams, who historically is probably the greatest hitter of all time. And this was just about three years before Ted Williams ended up passing away, and he wasn't in great health. He couldn't really get out of the golf cart. They had to drive him around. But uh, it was a real thrill for all the guys to see him. He was honored in his home stadium there in Boston. And then we got to the actual game. And Pedro, in the middle of his prime, started the game for the AL. He struck out the first four batters he faced. Struck out the side in the top of the first in his home stadium. He was the MVP that night. He struck out Barry Larkin, Larry Walker, Sammy Sosa, and then began the second inning striking out Mark McGuire. And this was during McGuire and Sosa's peak you know, home run hitting abilities. So you had Ted Williams pregame. You had Pedro Martinez striking out four of the best hitters in the NL consecutively to start the game. That's number three. Number two is Cal Ripken. His final All-Star game in 2001. We knew he was retiring that year. They put him in the All-Star game, even if it wasn't necessarily deserved. He was a third baseman at the time. But there was a cool moment where A-Rod was the starting shortstop. He gave Cal Ripken uh, the shortstop. They swapped and gave him the shortstop uh, duties to go back to his original position one final time, and it was in Seattle. So it was A-Rod. Although at that time, A-Rod was a Texas Ranger, but he had just come from Seattle, and that was a nice gesture to, to give Cal the shortstop spot. And then, of course, because you can never script these things, or, or they go as scripted, uh, Cal Ripken hit a home run in his final All-Star game. That was a cool moment for an all-time great. Number one, most memorable moments in All-Star game history has to be Pete Rose and Ray Fossey in 1970. And this is what people always point to when they say the game used to mean something. It was extra innings. Pete Rose was coming home, play at the plate, and he wanted to make sure the NL was going to win that game, so much so that he took out Ray Fossey and injured the all-star catcher. Fossey's career was never the same. And we point to Pete Rose to, to that moment of, you know, Charlie Hustle and laying it all out on the line in an all-star game. Hindsight being 2020, yeah, you look back and you say, like, oh, that was a pretty crummy thing to do. Kind of ruined Ray Fossey's career. But Back in 1970, the All-Star game was, you know, as big as the World Series. They never played one another. There was no free agency. It was the AL versus the NL. You had separate league offices, separate umpires. They weren't really together until the World Series. It wasn't an exhibition game. It was important to go out there and play, and uh, there's no greater example than Pete Rose laying out the catcher at home in an All-Star game. As the story goes, I believe they had dinner the night prior. I think Pete may have even stayed with Ray Fossey. You know, like uh, there wasn't necessarily bad blood. He was just trying to win the game. They were with one another the night before, and then they went out there in that All-Star game, and uh, Pete Rose laid him out at home plate. And uh, Ray Fossey, unfortunately, who also just passed away in the last uh, year or two, uh, had his career altered. But when you think of All-Star games, I think that's the number one moment most people think of, even if you didn't see it live. I didn't see it live, but I've seen that video many times. I can picture it in my mind right now of Pete Rose diving in and taking out the catcher at home over 50 years ago. The most memorable moments in All-Star game history. I don't think you're going to see that same passion tonight on the field that Pete Rose brought in 1970. When we come back, it's been a while, but it's the return of Trent's takes. We do that next. It's more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show.
It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Breaking down the All-Star Week for Major League Baseball with our midseason awards and then our Tuesday Top 10 last segment in which we ran through the 10 most memorable moments as decided by me in All-Star Game history for Major League Baseball. with The All-Star Game coming up tonight. But it's the return. It's been a few days. We haven't been able to do it. We usually do it around this time each and every day. It's the return of Trent's Takes. What's on the mind of the Morrow Midday Show producer? Draft Luke Morrow. That's Panthers. right. It's time for Trent's Takes. The radio cowboy will be coming, and he's coming soon, folks. Luke, I've never been more happy to hear that uh, intro right there. It is good to be back, ladies and gentlemen. And like I said at the beginning, time off is great, but I was yeah. also at a place, Luke Morrow, where I, w- I went to a college town. I was in you know, Pittsburgh, and then I went to a college town for multiple days. I and it was this thing called Art Fest, right? And so I assumed, oh, there's be a lot of cool art. Everybody's having a good time. This is when like every alumni, every person that's uh. ever been to Penn State comes back for the weekend. It was a time. It, it was a time I felt like a 45 year old man because I was just like, I want to go to bed. I want to go home. But I don't know why, Luke Morrow. But I'm feeling a little older and older by the day, and uh, I don't know if I can do a trip like that again, quite honestly, because it really, really got to me. Maybe being in the workforce, working so long, you know what I'm saying? I can only go out so many times right. during the week, and you know, doing it back to back every single day was uh, a little difficult. But the golf game wasn't great, obviously, uh, due to those reasons. I'll yeah. blame it on that right now. But I'm glad to be back, my man. And I don't know if you saw this this morning. I always turn on Get Up just to see what's happening in the AM, and you're, you know from Italian descent, if you will, quite the Italian family, the Moros. Dan Orlovsky, our guy, Dano, uh, went on, apparently he tweeted out last night, and he likes to do this, like he says chocolate chip cookies aren't good, oatmeal cookies are the best, things of that nature, just to stir the pot a little bit. This is a gentleman who eats grilled chicken with no seasoning, let's just put that out there. He says that red wine, chilled and with ice, is much better than red wine just by itself. Now, Luke Morrow, as an Italian, and we're not talking sangria here. We're not talking put some orange juice or whatever in there. We're talking red wine. You're sitting at the steakhouse, and you're getting red wine and a steak. Is Dan Orlovsky right or wrong here? Wrong. He's wrong. I had some red wine last night, actually. Uh, The white wine, I don't know why this is. White wine, you could put ice in. Absolutely. You could drink the white wine chilled. When it comes to red wine, though, no, you don't put ice cubes in your red. That's a whole, like, have Kool-Aid if that's what you're looking for. (laughs) Right? If you're looking for a chilled drink with that type of flavor, just make some Kool-Aid instead. Wine is not meant to uh, to be enjoyed that way. And I'll be honest, I prefer a chilled drink, yeah. even my water. When my water becomes room temperature, I pour it out, and I go get some fresh water with ice cubes that's cold. I have to drink cold water always. But for some reason, wine's the one exception that absolutely, I'll drink it room temperature as it's supposed to be. And I'm not going to drink it and say, like, man, well, this wine could really use some ice cubes. <laughs> or let me put it in the, the freezer for a little bit. Just have a froze at that point if you want. Bada bing. Yeah. There you go. So, no, Erlowski, he's wrong. No, he's completely wrong, and I agree with you on the white wine. I love putting ice cubes in white wine. There's no doubt about it. Maybe even, Luke, you know what I do with white wine sometimes? Put a little seltzer water in there uh-huh. just to get a little more flavor. But if you're drinking red wine, one, it's usually an occasion. You're pairing it with steak or, you know, something of that nature. Don't disrespect the wine like that, Dan Orlovsky. You're drinking watered-down wine. I understand it. Just don't drink it if you're going to do that. Respect the drink as it is. And that, that's just my personal opinion. you, know, you got to respect each and every drink and the heritage of red wine. That's Come on right. Now. Come on, now. That's the other thing. Maybe that's a little trick some people do. You go to college for the first time, right? You try to water down your drinks uh, to help yourself get through a little bit easier. 
I went on a trip with a bunch of buddies last month. They were talking about how they cut their Gatorade now because oh, there's too much sugar in Gatorade. They water down their Gatorade. I'm thinking, how old have we gotten that my buddies now have to cut their own Gatorade because it's too sugary? Maybe Orlowski's doing the same thing. He wants to water down the wine a little bit to help out. Just drink the just drink water if you're going to water <laughs> down the Gatorade or, you know, add some electrolytes in it or something like that. Uh, you don't need to just water down Gatorade to get a little hint of lemon lime. I mean, what are we doing? I was little? so embarrassed when my friend said that. And he wasn't the other guy. Oh, yeah, I do that, too. I said, what is going on here? Just drink the Gatorade. Yeah, you can't. That, that can't be happening, Luke. Oh. And your friends need to take a look at themselves in the mirror Seriously. and see what's going on. Um, you know what happened over the weekend? Obviously, Cam Smith never been against the mullet i've been betting on this guy every single major possible i love him he's absolutely incredible what a performance i know you probably talked about it on monday i haven't got a chance to talk about it the open was incredible i was watching it on my phone where we were it was absolutely amazing to see cam smith the resilience and once again rory mcelroy falling apart which you know not really falling apart cam smith just had two 64s in a major championship in the second and fourth round which is unheard of it's absolutely incredible but luke i want to ask you this because the fedex playoffs are coming up here pretty soon and obviously live golf is in the headlines with Faraday going over to live golf charles barkley may have a role with live golf is cam smith the next domino to fall going to live golf he seems like he's got his major he's going to compete in the fedex playoffs and then go get 100 mil from live and then continue to play in the majors that could change you know from years to come or there might be some merger who knows but i feel like luke after the FedEx Cup playoffs this season, there's going to be a lot of changes in the PGA, and we're going to see a lot more guys hop over to Live Golf as of right now. Yeah, I think this would be a bad sign that uh, of potentially things to come, that a guy wins a major like this, and then we have rumors <laughs> hours, minutes after he wins. Like, all right, I think he's going to Live Golf. That could be a bad sign for future events to come, that a guy finally gets the win. You get that exception where he's good now for the majors until, what, 2027? And now you go make your money elsewhere uh, at Live Golf Tour. I think the other thing, too, and maybe this is more tongue-in-cheek, but he won the major. He played fantastic, as yeah. you mentioned, on Sunday. And he won, like, what, $2.5 million? Yeah. And then here comes Liv and saying, like, <laughs> hey, we'll give you $90 million. And right. so Cam Smith's sitting there thinking, like, I just had this incredible weekend. It got me $2.5 million, which to you and I, of course, is that would be incredible. Yeah. To a professional golfer, it's like, man, that's it. And then you have Liv Golf saying, hey, here's $90 million. It shows the difference in what the Live Golf Tour can offer compared to what these guys are getting on the PGA Tour just in these majors. Yeah. So for Cam Smith, yeah, I think the timing is right. And uh, also for Live Golf Tour, then you steal like the headlines where we're talking about this guy and his tremendous win over the weekend. Oh, now he's going to become a Live Golfer. So I think the timing works for both Cam Smith and Live Golf Tour to try to, uh, you know, quote unquote, steal him away after that win. It's going to be pretty interesting to watch. And I, quite honestly, if they have Faraday and Charles Barkley, you know, like calling, uh, calling the rounds and things of that nature, there's got to be a TV network that's going to pick them up eventually. You'd have to think bringing those two big names into you know be uh, personalities for your tour you'd have to think it would you know get off of youtube even though it's doing very well on youtube but for the mass public more accessible if you're on a television network so i do think cam smith is going to jump and you got to think the 90 million too is just like a signing bonus yeah right they have the biggest per they have 25 million dollar purses per you know event yeah there's only eight events but cam smith is one of the best golfers in the world same thing with like dustin johnson they can go make some crazy crazy oh, money yeah. and it's guaranteed money so even if you get last place you're still getting a cut which is something that the pga has never done and now we're seeing the pga you know move up 
they could have been doing this what for the last 30 years and giving bigger purses and keeping it for themselves but now they're doing it finally because live i think personally live golf is making the pga better it's going to make golf better as a whole i don't think live golf will last quite honestly luke i don't think this is gonna be 10 15 years down the road where you're talking about live golf but i do think that it's gonna make the pga better for the greater good of golf and, and the future of golf as of right now when it comes to barkley two things real quick number one he's always been the teflon don I'm curious if when he goes to live golf, if that turns people off from Barkley for the first time. The other thing, too, is according to reports, if he goes to live golf, he probably would have to leave inside the NBA or whatever it's called, the uh, TNT show. I have no issue. I've said, right, these guys got to get the money with live golf. That's fine. But if you take Barkley away from my NBA coverage... That, and then I'd really have a problem. I hope that's not the case. Yeah, we'll have to go outside of Turner Sports and uh, potentially ride because yeah. that would be uh, – that's every Tuesday and Thursday. Those That's my show. That's yeah. my show at night. I absolutely love them. I don't, they might be able to work something out. And Barkley has also said that he wants to retire in like two years. That's you true. know what I'm saying? So he might just go get a crazy bag from Live Golf and just do eight events a year and kind of leave inside the NBA and leave it to – Draymond Green or Dwayne Wade or one of these guys, which I don't mind when Wade's on there with Shaq because they have that connection, but there's nobody in the world like Charles Barkley. He is a one of one. Last thing here, Luke Mara, we are 51 days until week one of the NFL football season. It is closing in and closing in fast. Bills, Rams, can't wait for 51 days, folks. Now, I ask you, Luke Mara, without looking at schedules, just rosters alone, which team has a better chance of starting their season throughout the first six games Five and one. Is it the Green Bay Packers or the Buffalo Bills? Who is it? Oh, good question. Rosters alone. Rosters alone, I guess I got to go Bills. I think the Bills are the better team. Now, the Packers are in the NFC, so without looking at schedules, (laughs) I assume they have an easier path. But if we're just talking who has the better team on paper, yeah, I think I have to go with the Buffalo Bills. I agree with you there. And, I mean, Josh Allen, the MVP, even though I am a Packers fan, but it's going to take some time for the Packers offense to, you know, build together and grow together, Mm -hmm. obviously. With Christian Watson, there's going to have to be chemistry built, but you'll still have Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback. He's number one quarterback in the NFL for all their ratings. It's not even close. So I think they'll be okay, but I – Luke, quite honestly, first six games, if they're four and two, three and three, I'm not going to panic because I know that it's going to continue to work and continue to build up into the playoffs because the Packers never miss the playoffs. Do they win in the playoffs? Not very frequently. And last thing here, Panthers, did you see their black helmets? Yes. They're matte black helmets with like a blue, I think, Panther on the side of them. Absolutely love them. We've been waiting for these for years. The Houston Texans did a similar thing with their new red helmets, mm-hmm. I believe. Love that the NFL is getting into different kind of helmets. I really enjoy it because the Panthers' uniforms are incredible with the silver and the blue and the black and the white. But now you add the black helmets. Oh, my goodness. I am very pumped. Very pumped. I agree. I love when everything is the same color, mm. right, like the helmet as well. It looks weird when the jerseys are black, pants are black, and then you're wearing like a gray or, sil- in their case, silver helmet. I love when you can have everything be the same color down to their cleats. That's a great look. The other thing, too, as you said, with the NFL, they, they put in this rule that you can only use one helmet for player safety. They don't want these guys using a bunch of different helmets and one maybe isn't sized perfectly and it could lead to a concussion or a head injury. But that got rid of a lot of either throwback uniforms or alternate jerseys because you could only use one helmet. The NFL has since uh, gotten rid of that or they changed it. Maybe like now you get, I think, two helmets. Maybe it's not unlimited, but they expanded. So it allows teams to do something like this or for the Patriots to bring back those old school uniforms with uh, the Patriot, whatever they call them. Pat, the Patriot, whatever his name is, him hiking the football on the side of the helmet. 
So I love this, and I think these uh, uniforms look really cool for the Panthers. The, the Patriots red uniform, yeah. red jersey, white helmet. I really love that. I really love that, Luke Morrow. Yeah, my Vikings used to wear their throwbacks from the Tarkington era, and uh, it's a different shade of purple, and the horn is, is a little more curved, and they were great uniforms. Uh, Brett Farvorm, and then, uh, yeah, then the NFL put in this new rule, and they had to get rid of those. I love those old-school uniforms. So we get a little bit more of that now moving forward. And we get uh, these alternate helmets like the Panthers, which is pretty cool. You got a young guy, Kevin O'Connell, as your new head coach. He might want to, you know, bring in some new flair to yeah, the Vikings. I hope that so. could be fun. Absolutely. Right? Win in eight games and have new helmets. That's awesome. <laughs> That'll be the big thrill of the year. <laughs> right? If you're not going to be good, at least uh, have some fun or look good while you're doing it. Bingo. Look good, play good. Yeah, that's right. That's the idea. We're up at hour two next. Uh, it'll probably take more time than we have, but they came out with the Madden ratings for wide receivers. Pretty horrendous. We'll get to that next. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. We only have a moment here. We may have to circle back to this again later on. But Madden put out their ratings for the wide receivers in their upcoming video game. Now, I don't get really worked up over these ratings because they're pretty meaningless. But this list for the wide receivers is pretty poor. It starts with Devontae Adams, a 99. Cooper Cup is second. He's a 98 rating out of 100, of course. Those two, no problem with. Then you have Tyreek Hill, DeAndre Hopkins, who is a 96. Maybe a little, a little too high for me. Stephon Diggs is fifth ahead of Justin Jefferson. As a Vikings fan, both guys, you know, played for the Vikings. I'd rather have Justin Jefferson. I think he's better than Stephon Diggs. Then you get to Mike Evans, Terry McLaurin, Keenan Allen, Amari Cooper are all in the 90s. Those are the top 10. You have to go all the way down to 16th on the list, the 16th best wide receiver, according to Madden and those that create the video game. That's Jamar Chase, who I believe his rating is an 87 out of 100, and he's tied with Brandon Cooks when it comes to wide receiver rating. Now, we did our uh, – Trent did his uh, top five wide receivers – we compared it to ESPN's list last week with a bunch of executives. Now we have Madden's list. Well, my goodness, Jamar Chase, number 16 on the list of wide receivers of Madden. To me, that was the biggest shock of them all. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, you can't even put him in the same conversation after year one with Brandon Cooks. I mean, Brandon Cooks, what are we doing? And having DJ Moore, Adam Thielen ahead of him. I also, Debo Samuel at an 89 is relatively interesting to me. I think as far, I feel like he should be in the 90s just of his production. But, I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. Jamar Chase is a top three wide receiver in the NFL as of right now going into year two. That's true about Debo as well, yeah. I would agree. He should be higher. I mean, Tyreek Hill's a 97. Come on. Debo has a similar skill set. He does similar things for you. He could be a little bit closer to that than in the 80s. Pretty poor rankings or ratings done by Madden with the wide receivers this year. Hour three coming up next. We'll react to SEC Media Days. This is the Morrow Midday Show. But wait. There's more on ESPN Radio.
final hour of the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Coming up, some of the sounds from SEC Media Days so far. Shane Beamer will be talking with the media coming up in about 30 minutes. And I'm sure we'll have takeaways from that on the show tomorrow. But we'll be all over SEC Media Days all week long, breaking down different things from uh, the coaches, what they say throughout the week. And we'll get to some of that audio in just a moment. Plus, the most interesting team and the most interesting coach. They're not the same. The most interesting team, the most interesting coach in college football this year. We'll get to that coming up. The Stanley Cup is in the low country today. We'll get to that later on. Plenty more to do here in the final hour. If you ever miss anything from the show, you can always catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcasts. And the podcast is also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. Find the podcast there. You can always get in touch with the show at charlestonsportsradio.com as well. Click on our show page. Leave a comment there. Get to us on Twitter at Morrow Middays. Text the show, 843-608-1734. Or you can give us a call, 843-721-9500. To join the conversation on the phones. SEC Media Day is off and rolling. A couple of coaches spoke yesterday. A couple of more going on today. We get to Shane Beamer. He's the final coach to speak today. He's coming up at 2.30. Greg Sankey spoke yesterday. We'll play some of this audio throughout the week. We're previewing each conference this week. Yesterday was the Pac-12. Earlier today, we got to the Big uh, 12. Tomorrow will be the ACC. And we'll focus and really zero in on the SEC on Friday. But throughout the week, of course, we'll break down the happenings from the uh, SEC Media Days in Atlanta throughout this week. Let's get to some of that sound. And I'll give you some of my takeaways and thoughts as well from some of these coaches and um, even Greg Sankey as well as we played earlier. First, let's do uh, let's get to Nick Saban, who actually was speaking this morning. So he spoke with the media this morning. You may have saw him on Get Up as well uh, on ESPN. There was one funny clip. Let me just mention it before we get to the audio we're going to play. But Nick Saban mentioned something, and maybe we'll have it on the show tomorrow. But when he was asked about, uh, you know, like how long are you going to keep doing this? And he, said, he was talking about his off season. And he was sitting at home, and he had to clean the fridge, and he had to, you know, uh, mop the floor, and he had to cut the grass. And he said, "I couldn't." Off season felt too long. I couldn't wait to get back to to football. And it was a pretty funny clip. We'll try to grab tomorrow, but it just shows like why these guys, you know, why Saban continues to coach despite all his success and the fact that he's had just had to replace a hip, and he's in his seventies now. It's like, why does this guy keep doing it? Because it's better than the alternative. He'd rather be coaching football than being at home, you know, with that honeydew list doing chores around the house. So Saban instead continues to do what he loves, coaching football. Here he was, though, this morning talking about name, image, and likeness. There was this this idea when Saban lashed out at Jimbo Fisher in Texas A&M. The idea was, you know, Alabama's lagging behind in name, image, and likeness, or Saban may not like name, image, and likeness. So, of course, he was asked about that this morning. Here's what Nick had to say, uh, a pretty uh, long-winded answer, but an insightful one, uh, Saban's thoughts on name, image, and likeness. Yeah, well, I don't dislike name, image, and likeness. I'm all for the players. I want players to do well. Uh, our players did extremely well last year. They made over $3 million in name, image, and likeness. So uh, I'm, all, I'm all for the players, you know, being able to um, do as well as they can and use their name, image, and likeness to create value uh, for themselves. And, um, you know, we have a great brand at Alabama, uh, so players are certainly – 
their value there is going to be enhanced because of the value that our brand can help them create. Um, but, you know, the thing that I have, um, you know, sort of expressed uh, not concerns about, but um, there's got to be some uniformity and protocol of how name, image, and likeness is implemented. Uh, and I think there's probably a couple factors that are important in that. Uh, how does this impact um, competitive balance, you know, in college athletics? Um, and is there transparency to maintain fairness uh, across the board in terms of college athletics? And how do we protect the players? Because there's more and more people that are trying to get between you know, the player and the money. Um, and in the NFL, they have guidelines for agents because the NFL Players Association sort of has rules and regulations about how they, um, you know, should, um, you know, professionally, you know, help the players. Uh, so that's, you know, something that, you know, we really want to make sure that our players are not being misguided in any way. And, um, the biggest concern is, you know, how does this impact and affect recruiting? Uh, Nick Saban, part of his answer this morning on name, image, and likeness. Some of the things he said before, but I think he makes a lot of good points. I am for name, image, and likeness and guys making money, but I do think there could be some benefits of having some sort of transparency, if nothing else, in all this so that you truly know what's going on. And if you put in some sort of salary cap as well, right, maybe that would be nice too. Uh, as opposed to the top programs being able to essentially bury everyone else. But at the same time, as they always say, you know, you're worth what someone's willing to pay for you. So if the schools have the money and they're willing to spend it on somebody, right, so be it. But Nick Saban, his thoughts on name, image, and likeness. The other thing, too, that Nick keeps talking about is this this fairness and the across the board. And it is true when it comes to scholarships, right, but college football has never been exactly fair to every program. It has never been universal to every program other than the uh, maybe the scholarships is the only thing. But even down to like the number of coaches on a staff can vary from team to team. The number of games you play can be different from team to team. Different conferences can have different rules. We've seen that more in college basketball over the years. College basketball, whether it was when they first implemented the three-point line or even the shot clock, or remember when the Big East uh, did six fouls for a couple of years. So when we talk about fair in college football, eh. When it comes to scholarships, sure, which I guess name, image, and likeness falls in that same category. But you control your own schedule. Recruiting classes are just up to whichever program does the best. So I guess name, image, and likeness is the same. right? There's a lot of teams, like maybe South Carolina, could say, wait a minute, this isn't fair. They get to recruit so many more players than us. They get a bunch of better talent there. And the retort will be, well, you know, that's because they're a good program. Guys want to go play there. I guess you could say the same thing about name, image, and likeness. Like, wait a minute, this isn't fair. Texas A&M is paying these guys all that money. Well, they're, they're willing to come up with that money to spend. Your program can do the same thing. There's nothing that says you can't. Pony up the money and get the same guys. So fair is an interesting word talking about college football because eh, has it really ever been fair? Has there ever been really one set of rules everyone follows? I don't think so. Saban manipulates his own schedule. You know, the recruits are never, the recruiting classes are never equal. The only thing that's really equal are scholarships. And then I guess the way they divvy up the money the conferences make. That's about it. Otherwise, schedules are different. Number of games can be different. Uh, 
uh, recruiting classes are different. Coaching staffs can be different. Alabama and all their different analysts that other schools don't necessarily do or can afford. Name, image, and likeness, same idea. The haves and the have-nots, like all these other things of college football. Here was, um, let's get to Brian Kelly. You know, Brian Kelly, by the way, in another clip, kind of told on himself a little bit when there was some concern about LSU with uh, name, image, and likeness. And he said something along the lines of, uh, to paraphrase, uh, like, uh, we're not getting outbid by anybody, which sounds good, but also that's kind of against the idea of name, image, likeness. Like, that's supposed to be against the rules to be bidding for recruits. But nonetheless, here was Brian Kelly when he was asked by the uh, Saturday Down South folks what his favorite food is in his new hometown here. And to uh, answer the question in his famed southern accent, here's what Brian Kelly said in response. Well, understand now, I have a Boston, Midwestern, Louisiana accent now. So, you know, you're, you're, it's three dialects into one. So it's no longer family. I got, like, all kinds of stuff to throw at you. So just be ready. Uh, the best, you know, it's probably the crawfish etouffee is, is I mean, I don't know how you, 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 you top that. Now, the... Um, I would say also the, the, the grilled oysters. If you haven't had gr- grilled oysters, try that. That'll get your cholesterol level up really high quickly. Um, that, that's pretty good, too. Brian Kelly. A pretty good response. Right? Has a little fun in the beginning with the uh, accent idea. And then actually does give the answer to the question. Trent, are you a uh, crawfish guy? Absolutely. Got a lot of roots uh, when it comes to uh, Louisiana and my uh, family, my whole dad's side of the family from that area. So we're big Cajuns. We love crawfish. Any gumbo, any anything that we do, etouffee, absolutely. I, I love all Louisiana foods, all of them. Have you had grilled oysters before? I don't think I've had. I've had fried oysters, but I've never had uh, grilled oysters, no. I think he said grilled, right? He, he did say grilled, grilled, which was interesting. I, I don't know what they look like or if the if the taste is good. But you know, he also could have had some you know different uh, different options in there as well. The grilled oysters was a little interesting to me. Yeah, I'm not a big oyster guy in general, whether they're fried or grilled or anything. Nah, yeah, not high up on my list. But for Brian Kelly, he loves those grilled oysters in his new hometown. Hey, here was uh, let's get to Greg Sankey. We played this earlier, but Sankey, actually, you know what? Audible on air. Let's get to Lane Kiffin first, then we'll get to Greg Sankey. Lane Kiffin was talking about with the moving around, you know, and these teams joining different conferences. The Big Ten now adds USC, UCLA. Here is Lane Kiffin talking about, ah, no problem. The SEC is still number one. This was uh, Lane yesterday. I just say how it is. I don't know that there's a huge jump um, into the Big Ten, you know. Um, I think going to the SEC is a whole other animal. You know, and I think the draft picks and national championships prove that coming out of the SEC. And um, I just said it, it's, it's a different world. You know, they've said it for a long time. The SEC just means more, and it does. And it's just different. It's ahead of the game. And now, over the last five, ten years, the players have started coming that didn't used to come from the Northeast and the West Coast very often at all. And that transition, I, I feel like, started with Alabama, especially. And now, they're coming to the SEC, so um, that's a big challenge. Lane Kiffin yesterday. I do agree with him. Like The SEC was the best conference in football. They are currently the best conference in football. I think they will continue to be the best conference in football. And adding USC and UCLA to the Big Ten won't change that. Again, I'd rather have Oklahoma and Texas than USC, UCLA. UCLA, I think, is that poor that they drag down USC. I'd rather have the combo of 
Texas and Oklahoma instead. But Lane's right. I mean, the SEC, they've proven in past years that they were the best conference. Uh, I think they did the, the better job in the realignment. And also moving forward, I think they'll continue to be the better conference. And as you said, guys come from all over the world or all over the country, at least, to come play in the SEC. They know that they know where they have to be. they got to get down to the southeastern part of the country and be in the best conference in football. You know, Bryce Young comes from uh, the other side of the country, all these guys. It's not just Southern quarterback. It's, hey, if you're a good college football player and you have options, you want to go be in the SEC. No matter where you're from and how far it is from home, that's where you want to be. And the Big Ten, I, I don't think, have that uh, appeal like the SEC does. And nobody has that draw like the SEC does. Lane also said he has signed a lot of golf balls and uh, uh, mustard bottles this week. You may recall that that's what was being thrown at him in his return to Tennessee. Lane is always an interesting soundbite. And now that takes us to Greg Sankey. We played this audio earlier, but piggybacking off of what Lane Kiffin just said there, here is Greg Sankey where, you know, the conversation between conference realignment and also playoff expansion kind of blends into one another. They kind of go hand in hand. So a lot of the talk this week has been about name, image, likeness, about the conference realignment, but also when it comes to Greg Sankey, the playoff as well. Here's what Greg said in regards to uh, the ideas as we currently sit here. Uh, the idea of expanding the playoff down the road, here's what uh, the commissioner of the SEC said yesterday. We as a conference weren't unanimous in our support. Um, I had as commissioner moved people forward to the point we were supportive as a league. And if we're going to go back to square one, then we're going to take a step back from the model introduced and rethink the approach. Uh, number of teams, whether there should be any guarantee for conference champions at all, just earn your way in. Um, there's something that's healthy competitively about that and creates expectations and support around programs. Where we go, we'll see. Thank you yesterday talking about the future for the college football playoff. And I do like the idea of that competition of earning your way in instead of the automatic bid that, you know, you win your conference. We see this a lot in college basketball, March Madness, when it comes to conference tournaments. A team gets hot, they win the conference tournament, they take up a spot in March Madness even though they're not really a tournament team. And it'd be somewhat similar that a team wins a bad conference, say the Pac-12, maybe the Big 12, or the ACC is down, having a down year. It's like, yeah, they're not really a playoff team. They just won a bad conference. We see it in all the sports. I don't think it's a great thing. Like in the NFL, you win your division, you get a home game. And so we have like an 8-8 eight and eight team hosting a home game just because they won a bad division. It's like, oh, that's not really right. They didn't really earn that spot. It could be similar with the playoff if we're guaranteeing seats at the table for just simply conference champion victories, conference champions, especially when we continue to drive these conferences apart, when the gap continues to grow. You know, the second-best team in the SEC is not equal to the second-best team in the Pac-12 or the champion of the SEC. Not all conference champions are created equal. Whoever wins the SEC, especially in future years, it's not like the winner of the Pac-12 is on that same level. But I think the most important thing for Greg Sankey in the SEC is, number one, they don't need expansion. They're doing just fine. The other conferences and schools that are more desperate for expansion. But number two, if you're Greg Sankey, you probably want to make sure that whatever you do, whatever you decide, you want to keep a clear path for Notre Dame to have the same opportunity they currently have to get to the playoff as an independent. Because the last thing you want to do is put on some sort of restrictions against an independent school like Notre Dame therefore forcing them to make a move and join some sort of conference. And that conference most likely would be the Big Ten, and if that were to happen, then it falls back on the SEC of, okay, how are you going to respond? 
And piggybacking off of what Lane Kiffin said, I agree. It's what I've been saying since these moves have been made. The SEC is still number one. And I think even if you add Notre Dame to the Big Ten, the SEC will still be number one. But that does make things a little bit tighter or a little bit more competitive or just the idea of simply responding to your competitor, making a move, you know, going tit for tat, keeping up in the arms race. If Notre Dame, if and when they were to be added to the Big Ten, we'd probably see some sort of response from the SEC. So if you're Greg Sankey, you're talking about playoff expansion. While you're going through these ideas and decisions and proposals, keep in mind we don't want to make things too hard on Notre Dame because we don't want to be the one that drives them into the arms of somebody else and into the Big Ten and start this whole domino effect again. Because right now the SEC, they're sitting pretty. They're doing just fine. They don't need anybody else. Right now they don't want anybody else. Sankey also addressed uh, the ACC yesterday. We had these reports about, you know, ESPN talking about ripping up the contract with the ACC, negotiating whatever, yada, yada, yada. Somebody who covers, like, college swimming was the one that put out this report and people were running with it about Florida State and Virginia and Clemson. Greg Sankey addressed it, and maybe it was just lip service, but he said, no, we're not looking to, you know, uh, end any sort of media rights in regards to the ACC. They have their contract for another 12 years, whatever it is. We're not looking to rip that up for them. If a team becomes available, then we'll, we'll start talking. But in the meantime, we're not trying to undo the ACC's media rights to just try to steal a team. Maybe it's lip service, but Greg Sankey yesterday also put to bed, for the time being, the idea of the SEC looking at some of the ACC schools currently. However, he also sat in that same room with Bob Bowlesby for all those meetings with uh, no giveaway that they were about to steal Texas and Oklahoma. So I guess you should take everything with a grain of salt when it comes to Greg Sankey. When we come back, the most interesting team in college football this year, and I'll also give you my most interesting coach in college football this year, and they're not with the same program. We'll get to that when we come back. Plus, we got to talk a little fashion. There was a big story over the weekend. Went viral involving a certain college football coach, and we got to get to that coming up, too. We have to judge the appearance. Some more Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio. Spend lunch with Luke. Attention campers, lunch has been canceled today. Due to lack of hustle, deal with it. On the Morrow Midday Show. Coming up, I'll give you my most interesting team in college football this year and the most interesting coach as well. It's the more Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. But before we get to that, we have a business matter to take care of. I intentionally did not bring this up yesterday because I was waiting for Trent's return today. Over the weekend, Dabo Sweeney was uh, at a... Uh, a fundraiser. He, he raised a lot of money for breast cancer. So let's first get that out of the way and also take that out of the equation. Because if you're going to do something that helps raise money, you can wear whatever you want. 
But let's remove the fundraising aspect of this. Because for Dabo to do that, look, that's great. Most college football coaches aren't doing that. He spent his weekend, took out time on a Sunday. He was speaking at uh, an event, and uh, they raised um, thousands of dollars for breast cancer. Very good. This is not going to be some sort of pile on or pick on Dabo. But instead, a conversation about the outfit. He wore dark blue shorts. He had uh, like a pink Clemson polo, a pink blazer over the polo, and a pink fedora on as well. Now, people said his wife was the one that gave him the fedora. It was a little bit of a gag, but still, he was wearing it. It was pink, so he's going all pink. Dabo was getting ripped to shreds online for this look. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I waited until today to bring it up because, Trent, I wanted your opinion. You are our go-to guy when it comes to style around here. Ah, there we go. So when it comes to Dabo and the all pink, at least up top, above the waist, the all pink look, what did you think of Dabo's style over the weekend at that uh, fundraiser? You know, I think, Luke, he should have leaned into the whole uh, pink outfit. So obviously he had the uh, the navy shorts on, right? That That's what he had on. Mm-hmm. I think he should have had pink pants on, pink shirt, pink blazer, and now, the, the thing about fedoras is it's a certain type of head. It's a, serpent, a certain type of person who can pull off a fedora. And, you know, no disrespect to Dabo or anything. Or Clemson fans, don't get mad at me. But Dabo Swinney cannot rock fedora the way, you know, people who do rock fedoras can do that. He was not fedorable in that outfit, Luke Mar. I'll tell you that. But it raised a lot of money. I understand it was great. I was not a fan of the outfit. He probably could have stopped at the blazer. But if you're going to wear all pink, Go all pink. Get the shoes, get the pants, do whatever you want. You can make that a full, you know, pretty cool outfit. And I understand, obviously, for breast cancer, you're going to wear pink. But the fedora was a little much. You should have put, like, a pink feather in there or Ooh, something. Ooh, that's pretty good. Yeah. I agree with all points. I thought the same thing when I saw the photo. I said, oh, you got to go. I don't like the blue, sh- the, the navy blue pants with the pink top. Uh, the fedora, it almost looked like it, it didn't fit his head right. Like, it was almost too small or something. Now, again, maybe his, I guess his wife gave it to him, so it wasn't for him. You are correct. There are only certain people that could pull off a fedora. You either have to be like Frank Sinatra, a 1930s mobster, a musician maybe. And like Johnny Depp wears a lot of fedoras, and, and Johnny Depp can wear the heck out of a fedora. Let me tell you. That guy can wear whatever he wants oh, nowadays. Nowadays. Anyway, he yeah. can wear whatever he wants. So he's just fine. And he wears those big, I don't know if it's even technically a fedora, those, uh, they're like the, those bigger hats. Super hipster. That's, you know what yeah. I call that hat? That's a Nashville hat right there. That's, mm. a, that's a women's Nashville hat. Yep. Right? That's what they like to wear when they go down to Broadway and have a good yes. time. You wear the, it's a circ, but it's a little, it's not a cowboy hat, but it kind of looks like one. Yeah, it's not like, uh, what do they call it, the gallon hats or whatever? Yes, it's not a Stetson, no. but it kind of looks like it. Yeah, it's a cross between uh, a fedora and one of those floppy hats that a lot of women <laughs> will wear. And I'll tell you, Johnny Depp, he pulls it off well. But there's only so many people that could actually wear a fedora well. I also would make an exception for if you're going on vacation to a tropical place, you may not look great with the fedora on, but it fits. Yeah, sure. So that's yeah. the other exception. Yeah, absolutely. You put on some loafers, yeah. you know, you get a nice Tommy Bahama shirt, and you throw on a fedora. I can deal with that. I can yeah. deal with that. But it it also, it's the head size look. Like Dabo, sure. it made his head look a, a little interesting, and it kind of like fit low on his mm-hmm. head, too. I yes. couldn't really see his eye. I, it, was, it was a weird fit. Weird fit. If you're going to go with a fedora, let's take it to a hat store, a haberdashery, if you will, and let's get that hat ready to go for the uh, big ladies' clinic. I think that's another, you, uh, you bring up another good point. I think that's another uh, fail of the fedora that people wear it like a regular hat over yeah. their eyes you gotta leave it a little a little looser and sometimes a lot of times depending on the hat you even want to go a little crooked too is the look oh yeah uh that's the, now women can wear for uh, women look much better in fedoras than men do uh women can wear fedoras no problem for men you have to be a certain type of person really to pull off the fedora look
I agree. So that's number one. Or maybe number two. Number one was uh, the navy blue pants, the pink tie. The other thing that stood out to me, I got no problem with pink. I actually like pink. Uh, I just added some pink to my wardrobe recently. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Looking pretty sharp in that pink. I thought the pink clashed, though. His polo was like a different shade of pink than the blazer. Personally, maybe I'm off on this. I think it's got to be the same type of color. And then the fedora, I think it was wearing like three different types of pink. Yeah. Eh, they're clashing. It's not a great look. That's like when people wear, you know, like uh, blue, like navy-ish blue jeans and then like a solid mm-hmm. navy shirt. You know, it just, it doesn't work very well. If you're going to do the pink look, Dabo, let's go all the same down to the yes. socks and shoes. What are we doing? Lean into the character, Dabo. He knew, he knew when he put that hat on, he was going to get ripped on the oh, internet. Yeah. Just lean into it. What are we doing? Come on. And then he was doing the gritty. Yeah, that, yeah. that, that was that didn't another, go over well. No, that was another tough one. You know, Dabo, he, he likes to dances. He likes, yeah. you know, getting that out on social media and i mean the gritty wasn't terrible i give it about a five to six out of ten your boy kirk cousins when he tried it that was about <laughs> a three to a four but Dabo did okay with the gritty somebody's been teaching him the other thing i'll say that stood out to me and maybe this is just personal preference i'm not a fan of the blazer when you're gonna wear shorts no 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 and i know it's the summer and we're here in south carolina it's hot but if you're going to go with the blazer look and a fedora, I think you got to throw some uh, some full-legged slacks on. No, that's like if you're, you know, these ESPN guys who are, you know, working from home. They're yeah. probably wearing shorts, oh, yeah. and then they got their full suit on. That's mm-hmm. basically what it looked like, yeah. Dabo. Like, people can see your legs, pal. I don't, I don't yeah. know if you uh, knew that. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that, that mix. If you're going to go blazer, it's almost like a mullet, right, where they say, uh, like, party up front or opposite. Business up front, party in the back. Same idea. You can't be professional, top up, and then be all, you know, casual, uh, waist down. I'll also go this far, too, and this doesn't apply to Dabo. He was wearing, I think, just a short-sleeve polo. I don't even like long-sleeve shirt with shorts. Mm, okay. Even if it's like a button-down. If it's a button-down, you got to roll up the sleeves. I agree. I agree. All right, no, you can't, you can't do – exactly. If you're going for a summer look, maybe you know, you're going out to dinner or something, you wear shorts with a button-down long-sleeve, it's got to roll up about midway yes. to the forearm. That's, that's rule number one, Luke Mar. All right, good. We're on the same page there. <laughs> I see some people do the blazer, or we even had like LeBron wear the shorts suit, the suit with shorts. Yeah. I don't like that. No. If you're gonna wear long sleeves up top, you gotta wear the the long sleeves, if you will, down low as well. You gotta wear long pants. Just buy into the outfit. Yeah. That's what you gotta do. Buy all the way in. That's right. So I say, if you're wearing shorts, you can't put a blazer on, and you also can't even wear long sleeves unless you're rolling it up. Now I will admit, I will tell myself every once in a while I'll wear like basketball shorts, and I'll wear just a regular long sleeve T-shirt. Uh, that's okay. I do it every once in a while. I don't know if it's a great look. I'll that's do fine. that for comfort. No, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, uh, yeah I wear yeah. long sleeves and shorts, you know, relatively often. If I'm just, you know, like either working out or doing something, right. walking to the store or whatever it is, you just roll up the long sleeve a little bit. There you go. Yeah. You got to roll up those sleeves if you're going to go with the shorts. Styling tips here from the Mormon Day <laughs> Show. You're welcome. Yeah, rolling up sleeves is a key to a lot of outfits, folks. Write it down. I'm a big rolling up sleeves. Absolutely. I'm not great at rolling up the sleeves, though. i got to be honest with you. <laughs> and then I also feel like I'm damaging the shirt, too. Mm, that's so, a good point. The other thing, like sweaters, I've, I have stretched out some sweaters because I'll pull up the sleeves of the sweaters, ah. and, you know, it's meant to be around your wrist, not be stretched out up by your elbows, and then now the, the sleeves of the, my sweaters are too, you, well, know, you, you know, just do like the, the girls back in, like, the early 2000s where they cut the hole in the sweater and use it, you know, as kind of like a glove. Maybe you I bring like that, that back. You bring that back, Luke Morrow. That's a good – I'll tell you what, that's a good <laughs> look right there. I had a sweatshirt that unintentionally had a hole in the side. I used to put my thumb in it. Oh, that was great. Oh, yeah. 
And then they started actually making sweatshirts with the little, yeah, with the little uh, uh, side hole for you to put your thumb through. Bring back fingerless gloves. What are we doing? What that, are we doing? That's what I was going to say. That's like a quasi finger. That's a better looking fingerless glove. <laughs> Big Jay Okerson's a comedian who wears fingerless gloves. Uh, he pulls it off well. I don't know if I could. Fingerless gloves. Uh, what is it, for the grip? Like, what's the point of wearing a finger? You got to keep your palm uh, warm but not your fingers? Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know if you want to, like, don't want to callous your hands or something. I, I don't know what it's for. They, people huh. look like they're wearing weightlifting gloves yes. uh, everywhere. Adam Sandler wears fingerless gloves sometimes, but he wears whatever he wants. So, you, you know, if he just throws on some fingerless gloves, it's in style this That's season. That's right. Sandler's the only yeah. Sandler could do whatever he want. He still goes with the baggy basketball shorts yeah. from like ten years ago. Nowadays, it's all about the you got to wear if, if your shorts are going below your knees. That's a little outdated now. Oh, that's completely outdated. Yeah, we've Absolutely. gone we've gone back to the old school. You know, like back in the seventies where you got kind of the short shorts going now. Seven to five inch inseams is what you what you got to do, Luke Morrow. Can't wear these baggy. And they're always shiny. The old basketball shorts are really baggy. They hang below your knees, and they got that shine to them. Sandler wears them all the time. He's the only guy that can pull them off. Otherwise, you're wearing basketball shorts or even maybe like a bathing suit nowadays. You can't have the ones hanging down like uh, uh, almost uh, high waters almost, like hanging down halfway down your leg and all baggy. Can't do it. Let's bring back the 2003 NBA draft oh. look where everything was just super baggy, all the suits and everything. I need that back. I can't believe that was ever, like, in the time it <laughs> felt normal. I look back at those photos now, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what were we thinking? He's wearing a double XL, man. Yes. What are we doing? Those suits look absurd. Google the photo if you're not familiar with the old draft classes from the early 2000s and how big their suits were. The other one, and then I'll actually get to the college football topic, when the pandemic came and they were showing all sorts of old games, I remember watching a UConn-Syracuse basketball game from only like 12 years ago. Okay. Same idea. One of the guys, I took a screenshot. I think I saw the photo on my phone. When he bent at the knees to take a foul shot, his shorts were like touching his ankles. Whoa. And this was only like a decade ago, and I was playing basketball at the time. Uh, and I thought, my goodness, like we wore that baggie of uniforms. It looked terrible. <laughs> and I don't know how it's even comfortable to play with that much fabric hanging off of you with these baggy jerseys. Yeah, it brings you down, too. It yeah. weighs you down a little bit. you got to be able to fly. What are we doing? That's right. They're like parachute pants. Yeah. You try to jump in the air, and they catch wind, and they pull you down. Mick Jagger. Yeah, what are we doing? Yeah. And that was only like a decade ago. And I thought, wow, not that long ago. We were wearing that baggy of clothes. Feels weird now to look back on it, but it wasn't that long ago, and I think I was just as guilty wearing those baggy basketball shorts and jerseys. But nowadays, we've gone back to the old school of uh, you know nice, tight-fitting clothes, at least with the athletes. Keep those shorts above the knees nowadays. <laughs> and if you're going to go with the blazer, you got to go long pants. Uh, stop with the shorts and the blazer look. You guys text the show, 843-608-1734. Somebody said, try grilled oysters Rockefeller. They're delicious. Ooh. And I'll put that on the list. I feel like I'm walking into a trap, though. <laughs> grilled oysters Rockefeller. I'll remember that. What's the most interesting team in college football this year? Who's the most interesting coach? Well, speaking of Dabo, I think the most interesting team this year is Clemson, and I've said this before during this offseason. I think Clemson's the most interesting team in college football this year because you have a guy in Dabo that really has nothing left to prove, and yet it feels like there is still something left to prove for Clemson. Dabo could retire today and be just fine, or he can never make a playoff again. I would like to think that his legacy is good enough in what he did at Clemson and winning multiple championships. Not a lot of guys have done that, let alone done it at Clemson. And yet, and maybe it's just me, but I get a feeling like it's not. That at least outside of Clemson fans, there's still this idea now of they had for Clemson a down year last year. You have question at the quarterback position. You lost your two 
good coordinators. And the question is uh, twofold. Number one, what is life going to look like after Tony Elliott and Brent Venables? But also, was last year just that blip on the radar, or is this kind of uh, the start of a downward trend now, where the run is, for lack of a better term, over? That run of being one of the best teams in college football and competing for a championship every year. Doesn't mean that they're done making it to the playoff ever, but you know, say they don't make it to the ACC championship again this year. Do we move back into a world where it's no longer a gimme or a given that Clemson wins the ACC? So I think Clemson's the most interesting team. You can make a case for Miami. What is Mario Cristobal going to do year one? Lincoln Riley year one at USC. But those are all ideas of a new coach in a new place trying to build up an old program. For Dabo, he's a guy that really probably shouldn't have anything left to prove, and yet there is like a feeling that Clemson still has something to show us this year. We'll see if they can. When it comes to the most interesting coach for the points, I said maybe you could say Dabo, but I would say his former defensive coordinator, Brent Venables. We were talking about Oklahoma and previewing the Big 12 earlier. Yesterday, we focused on the Pac-12. Today, the Big 12. Tomorrow, the ACC. If you missed our Big 12 breakdown, you can catch it on demand. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. But I do think Venables is the most interesting of the new coaches because, again, if you compare him to the other coaches that changed jobs, Lincoln Riley, we've seen him as a head coach before. Can he get USC back to where they once were? We'll see. But we kind of know what to expect from Lincoln Riley. Mario Cristobal, I love the fit in Miami. I think he's going to do a great job, but we also kind of know what to expect, and we assume it's going to work out. Brian Kelly at LSU, I like that fit, that pairing. I know he kind of embarrassed himself with the fake accent and everything else, but Brian Kelly's a really good coach. LSU is a good place to win. I think he's going to have success there. But we've also seen Brian Kelly as a coach for a number of years. You know what you're getting. Venables has never been a head coach. He steps into a big program in Oklahoma. We've been hearing about him becoming a head coach for years. Teams were interested. He shot them down, and now he settles on Oklahoma. And I think this is the most interesting one because of a number of different factors. Number one, first-time head coach. Number two, we've been waiting for this moment for a number of years. Number three, it's a big brand. He didn't go to Toledo to go grind his teeth. He's stepping in at Oklahoma. Number four, it's a wide-open conference, so they have a chance to potentially win the Big 12 in his first year. And then also, number five, I guess we could say, you know, the Big 12 is historically an offensive conference. And here comes this defensive coach replacing a great offensive coach in Lincoln Riley. I'm curious to see how that works out. Now, this past season, the Big 12 was more defensive than ever before. Maybe it's the new Big 12. I don't know. But Venable steps into a big-time program with a lot of publicity around him, first-time job, waited you know, for years holding out for an opportunity like this, finally chose this one. There has to be a reason why. Let's see if it works out. You bring in a new quarterback, a bunch of new pieces, wide-open conference. You kind of know what you're getting with Lincoln Riley, or at least you assume. right? You assume you, you know what you're getting with Brian Kelly, Mario Cristobal, all the coaches that have currently been in their jobs, like Jimbo Fisher. You know what you're getting there at Texas A&M. I think the most interesting guy, though, is Venables because it is a big-time job, and we still have questions around him. You can make a similar case for like a Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame, but I think even right now Oklahoma is more important to college football this moment than Notre Dame. Uh, I think Oklahoma right now is that bigger program, maybe not historically, but today I think they have a bigger spot in the college football landscape today than Notre Dame does. How is Venables going to do? You know, We've been waiting years for this. Now we get to finally see it play out. Earlier I compared it to when you're waiting for that movie to be made. In fact, I can remember The Irishman, uh, hearing about it years in advance and waiting. And it was about three years before it finally came out. And you've been waiting for it, and you're excited. And it's like, all right, well, let's see what we have here. And sometimes it can be a real letdown because you've been waiting so long, you built up expectations. 
we've been hearing about Venables being this, you know, the next guy and turning down opportunities. Well, now we finally get to see it, and it's taken years building that suspense and the expectations and the pressure, and uh, let's see how he does in year one following through at Oklahoma. When we come back, the Stanley Cup is in town. Maybe you even went already today to go see it in North Charleston. We'll touch on that when we come back. More Midday Show here on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. It's the Morrow Midday Show with Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. Hey, the Stanley Cup is in the low country today. Colorado Avalanche head coach Jared Bednar brought it to the low country to North Charleston at the, uh, what is it, the Ice Palace there. And uh, it's on display for people to see. It's a really cool thing that the NHL does just in general, giving everybody in the with the team a day with the Stanley Cup and then for uh, Jared Bednar to do something like this is really cool because you know you can see the videos online Scott Eisberg's been all over it but uh the the kids that are there for their hockey practice or whatever it may be you know little kids playing hockey in town and uh, they get to see the Stanley Cup at the Ice Palace is pretty cool and you can see the videos online of the real thrill of these kids seeing the Stanley Cup so, you know, NHL, obviously hockey, it's not the most popular sport in the country, but I can tell you this is the, the one thing that they certainly nail and get right where the Stanley Cup is such a big thing, that trophy. It's uh, maybe the most notable of the trophies. And then the idea of just giving everybody uh, a day with the Stanley Cup to do whatever they want is just a pretty cool thing. And it goes around the country, and fans can see it and experience it. This audio comes courtesy of Scott Eisberg. I'm sure you'll see it on TV tonight as well. But here was Jared Bednar, who, uh, of course you know, has uh, the connections to the Stingrays and won a championship or won the Stanley Cup with the Avalanche. Here he was talking about um, just winning the trophy and bringing it back to the low country, talking with Scott earlier today. Yeah, a lot. Um, it's a long journey. It, obviously, this is the, the pinnacle of it and uh, being able to win the Stanley Cup. But my time in the ECHL, I spent a lot of it. And um, American League, same way. And to be able to you know, be part of those successful teams in the ECHL and the American League and then finally get the chance to lift uh, the Stanley Cup. It was amazing, and, and uh, I'll never forget it. You're getting emotional. I mean, is, yeah. it, is it kind of hitting me right now, or what's, what's kind of the feeling? I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I mean, the, the journey that um, my family's gone through wasn't always easy, but really happy and, you know, really going to enjoy it today. That was Jared Bednar talking about the Stanley Cup victory. Here is uh, Phil Pritchard, who for 34 years, he's been the quote-unquote keeper of the cup. He's the one in charge. He goes around from place to place all across the world in charge of that Stanley Cup trophy. He, of course, is in the low country with it today. Here was uh, Phil Pritchard talking to Scott about his job. Yeah, it's been here a I couple mean, times now. And I think it's the third. We were trying to figure it out with Rob there earlier. Uh, it's a beautiful beautiful area of, of South Carolina. I love coming down here. We flew into Charlotte yesterday. We didn't take any chances on a connector, so we drove from Charlotte. So we got in last night, and 
should be a great day for everyone today. So what's your schedule like now? If you can just talk a little bit about your schedule that you've got uh, with this. <laughs> well, the, how, when did you start this run and when do you end this run? So the team gets 100 days with a cup, basically from the night they win until home opener. But the summer this season is a very short one because the players have to be back in camp in early September. So they basically have July and August. So we've, uh, we drove the Quebec part of the players and then we just did uh, middle of the US, Chicago, Columbus. We drove that as well. We flew down yesterday. Tomorrow we're actually heading over to Europe, heading to Munich and we have uh, guys in Czech Republic, Germany, Finland and Sweden. And then we'll come back from Europe and hit Western Canada and we'll hook up with Gerard back in, uh, back in Humboldt later in early August. So the road show continues. Does it ever make you nervous to check the Stanley Cup? I, I, I have my fingers crossed every time we do check it. There's a lot of hockey fans out there, but we all know what's going on in the airlines and airports these days. And That's a good question about checking. Think about that. The Stanley Cup, they travel from place to place. As he said, a lot of it may be done by driving. But you have to fly. They're going to Europe tomorrow. They're going from Charleston here to flying out to Europe with a trophy tomorrow. It is interesting to be always taking that risk by checking uh, the Stanley Cup on some sort of commercial flight and hoping everything goes well. I mean, how often have you had your luggage lost or be delayed or whatever it may be, wind up in a different city? Imagine something happening to the Stanley Cup. And, um, and also, Boomer Esiason told the story about when he played in the Pro Bowl, somebody stole his uniform at the airport. It must have been after the game. Uh, one of the people of the baggage claim, I guess, stole his uniform out of his bag, his game-worn um, uniform from uh, the Pro Bowl. And he got it back years later from the family after the guy passed away. The family felt guilty, and they gave it to him. So as uh, Pritchard said in that clip, right, there's a lot of hockey fans out there. It's true. Someone's working at the airport. Here comes the Stanley Cup. Now, I don't know if you could get away with it or how long you could get away with it for. But that is a bit risky to, you know, be checking the Stanley Cup and trusting all these airlines and airports to make sure it gets from point A to point B safely. We have 100 days with a lot of travel if you're Phil Pritchard moving around with that Stanley Cup. It's a really cool thing the NHL does for the players, but also the fans as well. Watching some of these videos, it looks like as a fan, you could go up, at least Jared's letting you go up and, and touch the thing as well. I've, been, I've seen a handful of different World Series trophies. I've seen the Larry O'Brien trophy, the NBA Finals uh, uh, trophy as well, like up close in front of my face, but I've never been allowed to touch them. That's the difference. I've never seen the Stanley Cup trophy, but that's pretty cool. You could actually, based off of these videos I'm looking at from North Charleston today, right? fans could just come up and just touch the thing. That's pretty cool. Because I think there was a difference between seeing and then actually like being able to pick it up or grab it. I've seen World Series trophies, and I was like, yeah, that's cool, but it's right in front of me. I can't even touch the thing. I can't like pick it up and hold it over my head like I'm a champion not as cool to just look at it i'll just look at google images it's almost the same thing instead of seeing it in person but the stanley cup that thing has been through so much anyways that they probably don't care if you're going to touch it a little bit in north charleston the guys are denting it and dropping it and drinking beer out of it and eating cereal out of the thing anyways not bad if you're in the area i don't know if they're still over there but pretty cool to be able to go see the stanley cup in north charleston today that's the one thing the nhl has on everybody else you know, it's not the most popular sport. It doesn't have the largest fan base, but the job that they do with the Stanley Cup trophy, uh, I think it's the most uh, notable of, of the trophies in sports, and it's cool that they bring it around player to player, country to country, and different people get to see it in the offseason. That helps grow the game and exposure. 
We'll wrap up your Tuesday when we come back. It's the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Now back to the Morrow Midday Show on ESPN Radio. Wrapping up your Tuesday on the Morrow Midday Show at Luke Morrow here on ESPN Radio. If you ever miss anything from the show, catch it on the man. Search ESPN Radio Charleston, however you listen to your podcast. Podcasts also available online at charlestonsportsradio.com. Just click on our show page. And while there, you can always take the Morrow Midday Show with you wherever you go. Stream us online at charlestonsportsradio.com or through TuneIn Radio, your smart speaker, or on- online. Uh, at charlestonsportsradio.com, but also through our free app. Search ESPN Charleston in the App Store, and through the app you can listen to the show live or on demand from anywhere in the world. ESPN Charleston in the App Store. Appreciate listeners checking in from at least nine different states and multiple countries on this Tuesday. We previewed the Big 12 earlier today and throughout the afternoon. Tomorrow we'll get to the ACC. Of course, we'll have more reactions with the SEC Media Days continuing and Shane Beamer speaking with the media today. The ACC Media Days, or Media Day, I don't know how long theirs is, it kicks off tomorrow in Charlotte. We'll uh, break down and preview the ACC tomorrow. Have more takeaways from SEC Media Days as it's talking season. Plus, we'll talk some golf with Jeremy Schilling. And at some point this week, I'll also get to my biggest concern for each NFL team this year as well. We'll get to that in the next couple of days. Plenty more to do throughout the week. Hey, life is a series of hellos and goodbyes. For now, we say goodbye. We'll say hello again tomorrow at noon. It's the Morrow Midday Show right here on ESPN Radio.